This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side, joined by Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South. The gang's all here. Ready to uh, bring you the latest, the greatest, the uh, the latest headlines, of course, plus empty news, news you didn't even know you needed to know. We'll get to all of that fun today. Plus, today we're also going to be talking with uh, a true blue expert from the Harvard Law School about how we investigate our own politicians. Are we doing a very good job of that, and do we have a good system for it? I would say maybe not. Spoiler. He Wrong. Says, no. Yeah. But he does give examples of other countries that are going through this process that may have a better idea. And you may have heard how many other countries are prosecuting their politicians. I mean, there's a lot of politicians like in um, in what's it called now? South Korea. Rio de Janeiro. Brazil. De Janeiro, Brazil. They've got a ton of uh Prosecution. Yeah, they going had. On. It was something like half of their parliament was under investigation <laughs> at one point or another. So, so is it just, just that they choose bad candidates, or are they just really honest in their prosecutions? Mm. It's just a routine. It's routine be. checkup. Just a routine check. So we'll get to that because uh, you know they're still in the Russian investigation, and we'll get a, a, some insight into how how he thinks that's going. Is it fair? I mean, once it becomes a political process, and the person in power can fire everybody. Then, you know, it becomes a little, I guess, jaded in, in, in if it's a verifiable truth or not. We'll get to that. All that fun straight ahead. Plus, um, more and more news about coming out about, thank heavens, the, uh, the, 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 the eclipse. Everybody is telling you now, don't look at it. Haven't they been Everybody, telling us that all along? Well, no, this is different. Now they have oh, okay. now they have like true blue medical doctors talking about don't look at it. So now they're saying really don't look at it. And now now the shows are all like giving examples of people that have looked at it and how bad it was for them. So the rule is don't look at it. I think uh, that's uh, how they came up with the character for Cyclops in the X Men franchise. Mm. Really, that's a good the guy point. with the laser vision. It's just it came from an eclipse. Somebody looked at yeah, the and then when he took those goggles off, yeah. whenever he takes them off, he just starts shooting lasers. Yeah, he has no control. So you have to keep those sunglasses on. Why? Why would you go right there this early in the morning? Why would you go to Cyclops and some superhero show? It's just science. I'm just telling you the facts. I I'm having a hard time on that one. Don't worry. I have secured a couple pairs of glasses. I will try to have one here on Monday so we can all stare at the sun. Oh, is it Monday? I thought you were going to scalp them for like $150 or so. I should because they're uh, they're legit. Are they? Yeah. They have a seal of approval on them. Who's, whose seal is it? Eh. Details. Dr. Xavier's. Yeah. Tr- Professor Trump, X. The Trump, the Trump uh, NASA no, good seal of approval. It's good housekeeping. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then that's good. Yeah, that's good. At least we know they're legit. Totally legit. All right. Well, we'll get to all of that fun. Um, Is it bad that I'm not interested in looking at the sun? Wait, you have glasses and you're not interested? Uh, it, just, it just doesn't. I mean, I'm, okay, great. Well, I, I was starting to have a complex because everybody else is excited about this, the eclipse. And I mean, I'm going to look at it like on TV, 
Yeah, I mean, but I didn't know. I felt like, am I out of? Am I just not cool? Am I not in the in crowd? Well, there's because some of I'm that. Not into this. I mean, there's some of that. Definitely, some of that going on. Yeah. Do I just not care enough about Mother Earth? Me. Eh. I don't know. It doesn't. This doesn't interest me that much. Remember what Mr. T said about Mother. No, there is no other like Mother. So treat her right. Treat her right. And then, like, I pity the fool or something like that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was really astounding quotes that he was. You able just to share quoted Mister T about his mother, Mm-hmm. and that he was like no other. So treat her right. So treat her right. I think I'm going to cry. Okay, let's go to the headlines then. See if that gets me out of it, Terry. What's uh, going on around the rest? I, of the I really don't think so. President Trump's top advisors wanted him to just talk about infrastructure during his impromptu press conference Tuesday. In New York City. He was at his hotel, if you didn't know this. Oh, he is. So the acoustics at the uh, press conference were ridiculous. As it was just constantly echoing. And he's just standing in the lobby out in front of his it's elevators. Just, that's great. What it's, a great conference. Instead, he blamed the violence on Saturday's white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, on both sides and defended the tiki torch-wielding white nationalists who descended upon the University of Virginia campus chanting, White Lives Matter and You Will Not Replace Us by saying they were protesting very quietly. Senior White House officials told CNN and NBC News that Trump wasn't supposed to answer any questions, but it wasn't surprising that he veered off track ever since Saturday when he was criticized for not strongly condemning white supremacy. He's been complaining to his advisors about unfair media coverage, one official told CNN. Another official described Trump to NBC News as going rogue. One of the most solemn faces in the uh, press conference belonged to Trump's new chief of staff, John Kelly, who was photographed standing off to the side of the podium with his arms crossed, looking down at the floor. Uh. In response to Trump's combative stance Tuesday, one notable figure expressed his approval. White nationalist and former Ku uh, Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke, who thanked Trump for his honesty and courage in declining to pin the entirety of the blame on the white supremacists. What's a KKK Grand Wizard? Their leader. Oh. One of their leaders. Their supreme grand li- leader wizard. They must have that laser vision, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe. Authorities in Baltimore removed Confederate statues throughout the city early Wednesday morning, only a few days after a similar removal of monuments in Virginia sparked the days of protests. Just after midnight on Wednesday, a group of police officers and a crane made their way through public squares and city parks, tearing down monuments and carrying them out of town. A small crowd did that did appear were celebratory. The editor-at-large from a Baltimore City newspaper reports... The police are being cheerful and encouraging people to take photos and selfies with the, the uh, statues as they're removed. Unbelievable. In other news, bystanders and first responders came to the rescue of a mother and her three young children after they were injured by a fallen tree in Central Park Tuesday morning. A large elm tree uprooted, uprooted and fell on a woman, 39, as she was pushing two children, ages four and two, in a stroller mm. while carrying an infant in her arms. Nearly, this was about, and it was in Central Park West. The, mo- the mom, uh, the, the woman was trying to shield the kids when the tree knocked her in the head, according to the fire department. She was pinned on the ground for about 10 minutes before firefighters freed her. The woman and three children taken to the hospital, treated for their injuries. The woman suffered head trauma and is listed in critical condition, while the children were listed in serious condition due to their ages. All of the injuries described as non-life-threatening. So the tree just fell over. Wow. wow. You're just walking down the street, and the next thing you know, you got a tree on you. Huge tree, by the way. Unbelievable. And finally, a Wisconsin man is lucky to be alive after a nail pierced his heart during a construction accident. Ooh. While building a frame for a fireplace seven weeks ago, Doug Bergenson was holding a nail gun and accidentally fired a three-and-a-half-inch nail into his chest. 
Holy cow. It didn't really hurt. It just kind of felt like it stung me. It stings a bit. But his work for the day was definitely over. When I saw the nail moving with my heart, I kind of like, I'm not going to get anything done today, so I better... Do something that about this. Well, that's the end of this outfit. <laughs> through the yeah, through the small though the small metal spike was sticking out of his chest. He didn't bother to call nine one one. He drove himself twelve miles to the uh, to typical the hospital. man. Yeah, right. He seemed like he goes. It seemed like the thing to do. He goes. I felt fine, other than having a little too much iron in my diet. <laughs> uh, hospital staff rushed uh, him to yet another hospital. He underwent open heart surgery. He did not have any permanent damage to his heart, just a scar and an appreciation for the power of nail guns. Yeah. He's got a reverence and a respect. Hey, hand me that hammer. I'm just going to drive to the hospital. Got to get this out. That is unbelievable. Have you seen those? Of course, you've seen those ambulance bills. Oh, yeah. I used to charge those. Yeah. But how could you, sir? Well, to save that man's life. He just drove to the hospital. He's fine. I know, but eventually they had to transport him. They said, the doctors afterwards said at any moment, it could have slipped one way or the other, and he would have been dead. Wow. It was just hanging there in his heart. Just sort of, you know. That is incredible. And it, was, I don't, it wasn't in his heart. It was to the side of his heart. But the heart was moving, and it was just kind of moving. Every the... time the heart beats, you see your nail <laughs> wiggle. That is, I mean. He hits a wrong bump. You know, he gets in an accident. That's why you kind. need to be grateful for people that do work like that. Because what's the worst thing that could happen to us? Because of how we work and where we work. Paper cuts? Paper cuts? Yeah. Yeah. Jeff could probably get electrocuted. Yeah. Right. We're safe over here. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's actually a really good chance that Jeff will get electrocuted before mm. the show's over. Yeah. Or at least before <laughs> the week is over. Yeah. Give him a week. Man, that is incredible. Well, congrats to that guy. He dodged a bullet. Or a nail. Mm, or a nail. A nail. Yeah. yeah. He does know. Who didn't dodge the nail was Donald Trump. He just doubled down and stepped right into it. Wrong. What is his compelling need to balance out the argument with the white supremacists? Why must – Is mean, it is it his drive that he's he doesn't want to be told what to do, which is what he did on Monday when he came out with his yeah. statement? That's – his initial response on Saturday was what he wanted to say. Right. Many people at fault, that kind There's, of thing. Yeah. Then Monday, Monday he came out and said exactly what everybody wanted him to say, which is what he never does. And then Tuesday he again told you what he truly believes. Doubles down. And is that more of a reaction to the media where he's watching them come at him and attack him and other Republicans coming at him and he's frustrated by all these people telling him he's wrong? And so he – not necessarily yeah. he truly believes everyone's right or wrong here, but that he's just more mad at the media and this is how he's expressing it. He probably that. is, but – I mean, it really is. You can't support. You can't support a racist movement. No, you can't support it, even if, even if they were one percent uh, innocent, or, or even if they're the other group was one percent guilty, or twenty percent guilty, or eighty percent guilty. Yeah. you can't show any. No, you can have this argument if the other side wasn't carrying the Nazi flag. Right. Yeah. That's really what this comes down to because other protests, and you guns, see this. And everything else they were carrying. Right. You know what this is? There are people that have been put on this earth and bless them. They just want to please as many people as possible. Yes. 
They're pleasers. Don't you think that's Trump? He doesn't I, want it. Doesn't want to disappoint anybody. Doesn't want to offend I don't think or upset that, anyone. That would I. Uh, so a CNN's headline is Trump's moral failure. But I don't – I really think this is a lot less – I think for a lot of us, it's a moral issue. Like you can't do this. I think for Trump, it's just – it's about numbers quite honestly. I just think he's an opportunist. So whatever is the best opportunity, he can't lose that percentage of vote. He can't lose that because he's already down to only a third of the country liking him really. You're wrong. Right. <laughs> You're wrong. So if he gets rid of – you know, the extreme alt-right then – and then the, the alt-right were very disappointed in his in his uh, his words a few days ago. On Tuesday. Now they're – pro- yeah. and now Yesterday they're more – Yesterday they're like, all right. Hey, now you're back, pal. There's a book out called The Devil's Bargain. Mm. It's, a, it's a book about Steve Bannon. Oh, the and devil. This reporter from uh, – was it Business Week or Bloomberg and Bloomberg goes and talks to him and does this extensive interview, which is the entire book. And one at one point he asks him, why didn't Trump during the campaign step away and make it a really apparent? I do not want the support of white supremacists. And they said they went and looked at the, the uh, electoral data. And it didn't show a positive gain for him to yeah. do that. So what's he doing? Because the people that would have voted for him either – didn't care or they they were racist. So they're like, well, yeah. if that's our supporters, then why do we need to make a public statement? Mm. Because the people who were really concerned about racism weren't going to vote we're for We're going to vote for them anyway. So they made this decision that this is what we're going to do. Well, I know, but then why does every other president blow them out of the water? Like even other Republican presidents will blow out that racist idea. Hmm. But they – is it just because I guess it's more moral? Yeah, it's, a moral, just, it's a moral decision instead of just an you know what's my I, voting. How can I win? Yeah, that's crazy, boy. What is going on this morning on Fox and Friends? Oh yeah, there, there was isn't a that segment. an animated television? Yeah, it's a great at kids Fox show and Friends yeah. at times. Um, there was a segment they had the, the one of the hosts and then a Republican and a Democrat strategist they called them, but they're two African American uh, guests. And they were talking about the statues. Should yeah. the statues really come down? And the uh, the Democrat decided, well, she just started talking about this moral choice that the president made. Hmm. And then they go to the Republican, and he started talking about the moral choice. They both ignored the topic, which was the statues. Right. And went to this moral choice. It ends in tears. Huh. People are very – they're talking about their families and how just emotionally yeah. as an African-American see the president of the United States siding oh, can you with white supremacists. Especially after having an African-American president. Like to me that seemed like we, there was all this movement, all this yeah. forward progress in race relations. And now it seems like we're just skidding backwards. And then you see what Marco Rubio comes out. Orrin Hatch had some comments yesterday, and all these Republicans start coming out like, what are you doing? Yeah. What's happening? And so now there's a question, does he have anyone in the Senate that he could lean on for his tax p- policies he wants to put through? Is there people in the House that are willing to step into this mess that's yeah, been made mold, yeah. to be Who able wants to, to get policy moving forward? It's a, I guess it's a good thing they're all home for August. Yeah. yeah. Give it a few weeks to settle <laughs> down. But wow. Well, and so what's going to happen in the fall when everyone starts getting, you know— Stir crazy. Yeah. Uh, and you're – there's going to be chaos. 
I'll predict some chaos. Oh, nice. All, well, all you need is one, one police shooting on an mm-hmm. African American, or vice versa, right. or it's like the what we've been seeing with uh, cops, somebody sneaking up on a cop and assassinating a cop. Right. And these protests aren't going to stop. Mm-hmm. There's been plans now. We're in Florida. And just Texas is going to have some more. Uh, they want to go back to Charlottesville because there's groups saying they're not done there. And yeah. So these these protests by white supremacists are going to continue because they feel emboldened now because they were only half at fault. And then did you notice it, then that now they're bringing up another issue. So do you go to so if we ended up needing to bomb uh, North Korea, if we ended up mm. needing to take on North Korea, do you go fight for a president that you don't trust their values? Right. It's the it's a weird discussion that's starting to happen where this there it's you have to have the moral authority as well. It's not enough to be elected; you have to have moral authority. But don't you think they would they would just be fighting not for the president but for their country? Well, depends. The president some would some say went overboard in his comments uh, for Kim Jong Un, and then others back him down. And this then, was locker room talk. <laughs> Certainly, I'm not proud of it. It's you have to have the moral authority. Right. It's not enough to just have won an election. People have to trust your your ideas. <laughs> we are in a different world, aren't we? Okay. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's take let's take a break. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking with um, a professor from um, Harvard about our ability to investigate politicians. Have we set up a method that that if, that is effective? That is apolitical. That actually can independently investigate our own leaders. Well, we'll be talking about it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. The investigation into the Trump campaign and the Russia allegations have followed President Trump's whole presidency the last eight months. He fired the FBI director, Comey. He criticized the special prosecutor, uh, Mueller, Mueller, and then calls the media fake news. He also even threatens to fire uh, the special prosecutor as well. So why does it seem so hard for the U.S. government to investigate our top politicians, whether it's President Trump or President Clinton or really any of our leaders? Uh, do we have a good system created to investigate our own politicians? Well, uh, according to our next guest, probably not. Uh, Mark uh, Tushnet is a professor of law at Harvard, and his research includes uh, examining the practice of judicial review in the United States and around the world. And uh, he's going to give us some of his insight. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, glad to be here. Boy, are we... I mean, it seems like it's 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 not a good alignment when we have our politicians uh, creating the systems to I, to basically investigate themselves. That's right. Uh, many places around the world have set up uh, essentially independent investigations, investigating bodies that uh, are more or less permanent, uh, and um, they do that in their constitutions so that politicians, uh, elected politicians, don't have uh, sort of day-to-day or year-to-year uh, control over the investigating process. Why do the, why are other 
countries leading in this? Um, I mean, is it just our Constitution's been in place too long? What is it that makes other countries more on top of this than us in the United States? Uh, Partly, it is just the age of the U.S. Constitution. These um, anti-corruption agencies and constitutions have been created over the past 50 years, uh, as constitution designers have learned uh, what's useful and uh, what needs to be done. Our constitution is, of course, an old constitution, and it's quite difficult to amend, uh, so we can't put in uh, novelty, uh, even when it would be uh, appropriate. Uh, but another reason really is that uh, the level of corruption in the United States or of things that really need to be investigated uh, at a high level um, is relatively low compared to elsewhere in the world. Or to put it more straightforwardly, uh, the problem of high-level corruption in the United States is much less severe than it is elsewhere. And so we don't have a need for a permanent body uh, whose job is to supervise high-level cabinet officials or to look into uh, misconduct by high-level cabinet officials because it doesn't happen all that often. Hmm. I mean, I guess that's true. It's because you do hear it. Uh, you hear it in the Philippines, it seems like, or or in Brazil. You hear it maybe in South Africa. Is it? Um, and so, what does exactly our constitution say? How? What is the process through our constitution to evaluate and investigate our higher ranking leaders? Uh, well, there are two. One is the ordinary criminal process, uh, and uh, that's been used uh, quite effectively in some instances. Uh, I was just reading about Governor Blagojevich of Illinois, who mm. was prosecuted for corruption and removed, uh, convicted, and as a result, removed from office. Um, the difficulty with that is that uh, those processes are controlled by politicians, uh, and so there's a risk that um, the Department of Justice will go more aggressively after politicians who are members of the other party and will ease up on politicians who are of their own party. Hmm. Um, and and uh, the higher you go, the more difficult uh, it is to get the Justice Department to uh, mobilize. Um, to some extent, that's not a bad idea. That is uh, making it difficult to investigate high-level officials. <clears throat> makes it harder to use um, investigations as a political tool against your political enemies. But it, it is a limit uh, on the effectiveness of this technique. The other thing that we use, uh, uh, or that's available, is a political mechanism. Uh, actually, there are two parts to that. One is just public exposure. And so one way to think about the First Amendment is that it's a, it's a means for uh, addressing problems of political corruption. Mm. Yeah, exposing um, people, huh? Right, right. We just have newspapers who investigate and come up with stories, and then the people respond uh, as, as they or we think we should. Uh, and then the other mechanism which we've confined to uh, the presidency is impeachment. Um, technically, impe impeachment is available for uh, any, the Constitution says, civil officer. Uh, but in practice, it, it affects only uh, presidential investigations. Hmm. 
Hmm. Is I, I guess when when I look at it, um, that that's interesting because with President Trump now, you do see him taking on uh, the fake news kind of thing. So he's he's almost mitigating or trying to mitigate the public exposure issue. But um, how do you think it's been it's being handled now with President Trump? Because they there has he's fired uh, he's fired the FBI director Comey. Um, the Justice Department uh, or Jeff Sessions needed to recuse himself on the Russia investigation. And so you can almost start seeing some of your argument, the complexity of having our politicians involved in this. Then uh, what was uh, is it uh, Rubenstein? Um, Rosenstein. Rosenstein. He ends up uh, appointing Mueller as a special, I guess, uh, special investigator. Um, but now President Trump threatens to to fire Mueller. Is is this I guess is this just normal? Is this is this what you're talking about when you say we have a problem with our own investigations because it's just mired in the politics of it all? Uh, on the one hand, uh, it is uh, normal and to some degree troubling because uh, it means that there's risks of political interference with the investigation. Um, that those risks are mitigated by the uh, the public attention that the interference uh, would receive and and the political pushback or blowback that would occur uh, if uh, it actually if if the president actually for example removed uh, special investigator uh, Mueller. Um, on the other hand, uh, the nature of the particular allegations is complicated. Um, and the facts are unclear, and it looks like the process is chugging along at a form of sort of normal pace for this kind of complicated investigation. So, yes, um, you know things are hanging out there for a while, uh, but the reason that that's so may be in part because the allegations involve complicated facts that need to be looked into. Mm. And I guess simultaneously, the media is still able to expose, you know, one new level of the investigation as they as it comes in to the next level of the investigation to who was uh, whose home was just, uh, you know, under warrant and, you know, who was just um, ran. I don't know what the word is. They were just investigated. So I guess I guess there is exposure going on as well is. But then you, I mean, again, you see some of the complexity of um, uh, the past, um, the past justice, uh, head of the Justice Department uh, was on an airplane with President Clinton and, and President, uh, ex-President Clinton came on the airplane, even though his wife was under investigation. And so if we had kind of our own independent, permanent investigating body, aside from our, our Congress and Senate, those things could all be done without any involvement of the Senate. What, what do you think it would take to make that happen in the United States? Uh, well, uh, at some level, uh, we could recreate the system that we had from, I don't know, just after Watergate through the Clinton period of a statutory um, independent prosecutor or independent counsel system. The, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of such a statute. 
uh, Congress eventually let it expire because they thought the experience uh, of uh, Ken Starr and President Clinton was um, uh, not a happy one. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It could be done. Uh, uh, Of of course, in concept, we could amend the Constitution to create a, a... an anti-corruption investigating body. Uh, One problem uh, with doing that, uh, with having a permanent body, uh, is uh, the the sort of, actually the relatively low level of problems Mm -hmm. that need to be investigated. Once you create, uh, the the experience with Ken Starr indicated that once you create um, uh, 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 an organization, whose job is to investigate and find out whether criminal activities have occurred, um, they will, that organization will just do its job. Yeah. Uh, and uh, whether or not, you know, the things being investigated really deserve the kind of attention mm-hmm. uh, um, they get. Um, there's this line I like to use, which is that the job of a prosecutor is to prosecute. Uh, and you sort of don't expect at the end of the year the annual report to say, yeah, we looked into a lot of things, and we actually didn't do anything this year. We didn't find anything worth prosecuting mm. this yeah. year. But if you have a low level of, pro- of criminality or corruption, you actually would expect there not to be very many prosecutors. Yeah, you don't want them stirring stuff up, right? You don't want them out there looking for a problem. Right, right. And and, and once you create a, a, a a body whose job it is to find problems, yeah. they will find problems. It's so true, isn't it? That's, I guess, why it's so complicated. Let's um, let's do this, Mark. Let's take a quick break and come back and continue to discuss it. I want to talk about, is there a difference between a special investigator and a special prosecutor? We um, and, and help us understand what's going on right now with President uh, Trump's investigation. And really, what are we what are we investigating? Is it collusion? Is it interference? What is it? We're speaking with Professor Mark Tushnet from Harvard Law School. He's walking us through an article he wrote um, about the U.S. Is, in ter- is terrible at investigating its own politicians. Blame it on the Constitution. We, you know, it's an older Constitution, and and yet also we've we've got a different condition here than maybe other uh, other democracies. So. Interesting insights, trying to do what we can to help you uh, understand what's going on in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, uh, we are talking about investigating our own politicians. We we seem to have a, an interesting problem. Uh, there's a good and a bad side, maybe. The good side is we, you know, compared to other countries, we don't tend to have as much uh, as, as many serious violations that would demand uh, a special prosecution or special investigations as maybe other countries. The downside is we also um, we have kind of a more complicated system because we don't have an exact provision for how to go about 
handling investigations of our highest officials. And so joining us to talk about it is Professor Mark Tushnet. He's a professor of law at Harvard, and his research includes studies examining the practice of judicial review in the United States and around the world. He also writes in the area of legal and particularly constitutional history with works on the development of the civil rights law in the United States and long-term project that he's been working on on the history of the Supreme Court. Um, and so, uh, Professor Tushnet, thank you again for your time and being with us. Uh, sure. When, when, when we look at this, um, it, there is – it seems like I think uh, uh, investigator or uh, counselor Moeller is a special counselor, they're calling him. But that's different than a special prosecutor. So we actually have – and, and maybe tell us what the difference is between a counselor, an investigator, or a prosecutor and – who do we want prosecutors to be the ones investigating our our officials? Uh, the The name really doesn't matter. Uh, they different names are given to different labels are given to different jobs, mostly to signal uh, either an expectation that prosecution will result or that uh, it's an open question whether somebody, whether there'll be a report that will lead to prosecution. Um, But the actual effect on um, how the process works doesn't really matter whether somebody's called a special prosecutor or a special counsel. Do they have the same powers like subpoena power, grand jury power, things like that? Uh, The answer is basically yes. the statutes or regulations creating them, just um, th- they have a list of powers, and then sort of at the beginning there'll be a name, but the powers afterwards tend not to be very different. Hmm. Um, there, there, there might be uh, a difference in terms of the scope of what you're involved, you're allowed to look into, um, but uh, uh, Special Counsel Mueller is charged with looking into things involving, I don't have the exact language in front of me, but uh, the the allegation of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government and anything else that might arise in the course of that investigation. And so his charge is extremely broad, um, and it doesn't really matter that he's not called a special prosecutor. Do you think it matters um, where the background of the person called to be the special counselor or prosecutor? Because like Ken Starr was a judge, uh, not necessarily an investigator, and it seems like he struggled creating any legitimacy or any you know unified uniform result. It seemed like. Where and and does and does Counselor Mueller have a different uh, perspective because of his history as a prosecutor, as an FBI agent? I guess uh, the answer is yes. It does make a difference what your background is, but the difference will depend on what it is that you're supposed to be investigating. So uh, both uh, turns out that uh, the technical sort of trigger for the investigations of both President Clinton and President Trump were uh, complicated financial matters. Hmm. Uh, Whitewater initially with President Clinton uh, and these uh, uh, the allegations of Russian influence or collusion uh, in, in the case of President Trump. Um, it, it, it takes uh, investigating complicated matters that involve uh, money laundering or 
um, uh, transfers of money from one person to another, investments in the Whitewater uh, case, uh, is a sort of specialized task. There are people in the U.S. attorney's offices around the country whose careers are devoted to investigating financial crimes. Um, I couldn't walk in and know what to do. Uh, <laughs> and you're, and you're a Harvard professor. Well, I, right, but that's a, <laughs> I know, uh, but that's, I guess the point is our best right. legal scholars wouldn't necessarily know what to do on that. Uh, right. I mean, what I would know is that I should find somebody who actually knew something about it yeah. and, and, and rely on them. Uh, but uh, uh, but it, it, it clearly helps to have people who are specialized in the kind of problem uh, that's involved. Uh, now, just this is to take I, I referred earlier to Governor Blagojevich, which yeah. involved an investigation of sort of selling a position for uh, money, uh, President Obama's Senate seat. Um, uh, investigating that takes a different kind of investigation than finding out whether uh, Russians exercised influence over the Trump campaign by means of uh, financial contributions laundered through shell corporations located in, I don't know, you know, in, in the Bahamas or something like that. And so depending on the nature of the investigation, you might want to choose a different kind of investigator. It, from the outside, it looks like... Uh, uh, Mueller is the kind of person you would want to look into this kind of allegation. Let's see. That's I mean that that actually that's that brings some hope. And then and then you hear another spin going on, Professor. And I want you to help us on this one. Then it's then everyone's like, well, yeah, but on Mueller's teams, he keeps bringing in experts, prosecutors, in fact, and and investigators that have also donated to the Democratic Party. And that's where you start hearing, you know, political persuasion and persuasiveness. And do we need to worry about that? Uh, and is, does, is there – or are these professionals that can remain independent? Uh, so I, I, I'm going to give a qualified answer. Uh, uh, we do need to worry about whether – uh, an investigation turns into, a, uh, as, as critics would say, a partisan witch hunt. Mm. Uh, uh, it is a risk that's occurred around the world that corruption investigations are will be turned into political weapons. Um, uh, it, it's happened in South Africa. My view is it's happening in Brazil now. Um, so you do have to worry about that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, first of all, you have to figure out what the evidence is that there is a partisan investigation going on. And, and I have to say, just this is my own evaluation, and people can take it for what it's worth. Um, it doesn't look to me as if the partisan leaning of the investigators in the Trump investigation are sufficient to, uh, uh, to be worrisome. Hmm. Uh, it's also the case, this is the other side of the story, that the people he, that Mueller and the people he's hired have very good professional reputations. Right. Um, and, and, and their professionalism 
offsets or whatever. Uh, and there may not be a partisan bias, but the professionalism uh, certainly weighs against that. Um, when they go to work in the morning, they don't think I'm a Democrat who wants to uh, get rid of President Trump. They go to the work saying to themselves, I'm a professional investigator and lawyer who has, whose job is to discover the facts. Yeah. I mean, really, that's that's kind of all I guess we could hope for. It seems like it would be in the best interest of the president to not necessarily keep threatening to fire Mueller um, versus just cooperate and, and get this thing done quickly. Uh, well, from uh, from the outside, you would think so. But uh, <laughs> Something he, else? he knows more of what's going on to find out. Than that's I true, do. huh? So. So does I mean, and I guess one of the concerns I would have about this is where does it end? Because it almost seems like the prosecutor could start with Russia, but end up with a million other financial issues or holdings or other problems with uh, President Trump. Or so are they limited just to a Russia investigation? The the charge that uh, the Mueller investigation has is not limited to the Russian investigation. Um, it it uh, it says anything else, anything that arises out of that investigation. Um, one of the things that appears to be happening, again, I'm based on news reports, not yeah. from any inside knowledge, um, is that they're pursuing a more or less standard prosecutorial technique, which is to find out if the people they're interested in uh, have engaged in other forms of criminal activity uh, and then use those uh, claims, those the results of that in- investigation, to put pressure on them to talk about mm. the Russia investigation. So it's it just as a, again, from an outside perspective, it seems to me highly likely that the Mueller investigators will discover various forms of either minor or serious financial crimes involved with real estate investments uh, among the people around Trump. It's, it's a, uh, I think it, it's, a notori- it's an industry that is notorious for um, illegality. Mm. So they're highly likely to find something. Uh, then the question is, do they use that merely to place pressure on people, or does that become the focus of what their work is? Yeah. Um, and can they turn – yeah, will anyone turn more right. information over to get somebody higher up in the, in the situation? Right, um, exactly. Do you, do you – I guess as we wrap up – uh, what would be your recommendation? I mean, I mean, an entire constitutional amendment seems not necessarily plausible. Do, do we need to go back to kind of having a sitting uh, special investigator always sitting by ready for these things, an independent investigator? What would you recommend if you know, somebody happened to turn to you, Mark, and say, what should we do to make sure our, we keep this place clean? Yeah, this may sound a little sort of Pollyanna-ish, but I think that what we have is actually pretty good, good. Uh, given our circumstances. Uh, we have a system in which when something serious, serious allegations are made, as they have been, uh, the Justice Department uh, sort of steps aside 
uh, because of political pressure, yeah. not because of the law, but because of political pressure, and creates uh, an independent investigation, uh, uh, sort of one time for this problem only. Um, and then again, uh, that investigation is defended against interference by public exposure and political pressure. That seems to me not a bad system when you have, again, as I've said, uh, this kind of problem is rare. Um, if it were more pervasive, then you'd want a more permanent solution. But this one seems to be, to me, uh, all right. Seems to be holding water. Well, Professor uh, Tushnet, we appreciate you. Mark Tushnet, again, is a professor of law at Harvard and uh, wonderful, just a wonderful person also wrote the article, The U.S. is Terrible at Investigating Politicians. Blame it on the Constitution. Uh, for now, it appears to be working, even though President Trump doesn't necessarily like what's going on and still threatens some uh, action. But in the end, you know, it's, it's happening. And by the way, it feels like to me, uh, it, you know, Special Counselor Mueller seems to be a, about as good of a pro as you can get. Uh, President Bush and President Obama both uh, asked him to serve as the FBI director. So I guess it's bilateral focus. Powerful stuff. We'll continue the journey, continue the learning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we got it. We've got to address this this racist. Um, I don't know what we're even going to call it. Turmoil that's going on in the country. You and especially when it comes to your religion, your faith, your belief, there has to be a point, folks, where if you purport to be a uh, a Christian. And you believe in Jesus saying that thou should love your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that's the first great commandment. And the second is like unto it, that you should love your neighbor as thyself. If you believe in that, then how on earth do you justify not treating every soul, every being on this earth with love and as equal to you? You can't have it both ways. You cannot say that uh, you're a Christian, I don't believe, and also uh, try to disparage somebody of another color. It doesn't work, folks. It can't work. You have a God that loves everyone, and uh, if he tells you to love your neighbor as yourself, he also is assuming you would treat them with the same respect that you treat yourself. And your same color. I mean, it's it's crazy to think that color is what divides us when we all bleed the same color. So uh, let's take care of each other, for heaven's sakes. This earth is too small to let this happen. Let's look after one another. That's hour number one of the program. Continue with us. The next journey, uh, we'll be talking about uh, how, to, how to create peak performance in your life. That's all up next on The Matt Townsend Show, right here on BYU Radio.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Okay, we're at it again. Hour number two of the program. You, uh, you're not going to want to miss it because today we're celebrating Roller Coaster Day. The day of the ups and downs. By the way, it all began uh, back in 1898, which was where the very first patent for the roller coaster ride was issued. I'm not big into roller coasters. Mm. Roller coasters make me nauseous. Really? Yeah. I went to that one um, place. I don't want to name the name, but it rhymes with Blotz Blurry Blarm. Okay. And um, they have some roller coasters, crazy roller coasters there. I'm I'm convinced that all of their rides are designed to make you sick. And I got really sick. And ever since then, I have no desire to be on a roller coaster. I think you get nauseous because usually roller coasters are somewhere at a fair where you've just eaten a bunch of fried food and yes. nachos. And something says, hey, you need to get this out of your system. Yeah, today we're celebrating Roller Coaster Day. If you don't love a roller coaster, then you can just love the up and down ride that we're all experiencing in America. How about the Love Roller Coaster? Now that's a great. That's the. That's at the. I won't name names, but it rhymes with Blizzneyland. Mm-hmm. There's that. It's a small world after all. Ride. I wouldn't you, call that a roller and, coaster. But. No, it, but you know, but the roller coaster of just the love that you feel after. The, there's a message of love. Yeah. Well, and if you're with brought your, to you by a very annoying song, if you're with your wife, it's, there's you can kiss. Isn't that ride closed a lot? Is it? I've, I've been there a couple of times. It's, it's always closed. It's probably because so many people jump off of the boat and take pictures with the animatronic. <laughs> hold on, is yeah. that what you do? Oh yeah, yeah, we don't do that. And if you know, if you hold your arm on the side of the boat, like you can stop your boat from moving. Oh, see, you because you, can you just grab the side. You of, lived near Blizzneyland. We know, yeah, so we you know, know all, all the, the tricks. We know how to get away with, you know, having a really loose seatbelt so you can stand up on Indiana Jones. Well, but be careful because there are people that have been decapitated on certain rides. On the Matterhorn, I'm convinced that they took out the trees that grow those little spiky balls on them because of my family. Really? We would grab them off of the trees. And then when you saw the abominable snowman on the ride, we'd launch those at him, and they would stick to him. Wow. Insider information from the Simpson family. And Homer, if those Homer and the gang. If those, if those weren't in season, we would just take some uh, licorice, put it in our mouth, pull it out, and chuck oh, it. Oh, you guys are the See, I'm devil. the youngest. Mm-hmm. This is the influence that my older siblings had on me. Wow. But I turned out okay. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of stuff, uh, including Roller Coaster Day, plus some other headlines we'll get to. A bear attack, or I mean, a bear breaks into an SUV. Scary, scary. I mean, there's a lot of bear stories going on. Global warming, I'm pretty sure, has something to do with it. Uh, we'll get to that crazy story. Plus, a burglar tries to disguise himself as the sun. We just had one that tried to disguise himself as a ghost. Well, yeah, but the sun? The sun. The sun, S-U-N. That's pretty massive. I mean, like, well, I am the sun. How would you do that? Just be really bright and hot. (laughs) Pretty easy. Duh. Sorry. 
We'll get to that. Uh, plus, today our our guest will be talking to us about how to reach peak performance in your job at work, and one of the ways may be actually to not work. Well, I mean, if that's the case, then most of the uh, staff here, with their consumption of Facebook and YouTube, they're at peak performance. Then, <laughs> wait a minute, say <laughs> that again. The be- one of the best ways to actually reach peak performance might be to work to not work. Done. Yeah. Because there comes a point in your day when you need to actually become creative. And many times, in fact, the research shows your most creative times are not while working. Sometimes it's just while showering. So maybe the best way to be productive would be to shower three or four times a day. Why can't they just install a shower here at work? They do have a shower here at work. I'm not telling you where it is, but they have a shower. It's for radio hosts and uh, other television hosts, not for co-hosts. Mm. Sorry. Is this the one in your office? Because that's more of a fountain. No, this is, this is in a special room in the building. It's more of a bidet is how I would describe it. I have a bidet in my office. You didn't know? No. Like, I, thought I thought it was a drinking was a, fountain. It was a drinking fountain. <laughs> oh, mm. brother. Yikes. No, so if peak performance is not necessarily doing work – there's one guy out there in the office. He's always watching oh, these multiplayer video games. Yeah, he's yeah. killing it. Yeah, he's on top of things. You, but you'd think he would then, because you still have to produce results, right? So, but you're, but the idea that you just have Wrong. to work, <laughs> the idea you have to work longer and harder and harder and longer and longer and longer and longer. All that does is produce burnout. Right. You got You've got to produce results so but it, without killing your ability to produce results tomorrow. It's it, the goose and the golden egg. Is this maximizing your downtime? This is no. This is this is creating. space, downtime, in your work time. All right. Downtime in my work time. Downtime in your work time. I'm not familiar with that. So you can have a better time with more results time. And then that is a good time. For everyone. And it could be including sleepy time. Yeah. Taking naps. It does for me. Nice. This is a good – I'm looking forward to this now. It's going to be a great book. Yeah. Great book. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, plus other headlines, of course, empty news as well. But let's get to the real headlines uh, with Terry South. Terry, tell us what's going on around the rest of the country. Lawmakers of all political stripes blasted President Trump for his remarks Tuesday regarding the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia on Saturday, which ended with a counter-protester's death after she was run over by a car. Trump said both sides were to blame for the violence, and he defended white nationalists who were Uh, protesting a very important statue coming down, calling them some of them very fine people. He did say that. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio tweeted that the organizers of the event are 100% to blame for for a number of reasons, and Trump can't allow white supremacists to share only part of the blame. They support the idea... Uh, they support uh, idea which cost uh, nation and world so much pain. Some of this from Twitter. Does so. he remember World War II? That's what Rubio is referring to. The white supremacist groups will see being assigned only 50% of blame as a win, which they did. And we cannot allow this old evil to be resurrected. These harsh statements counter the praise Trump received from white supremacists and former... Uh, Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke, who said Trump showed honesty and courage while telling the truth about Charlottesville. So, uh, as ongoing cities and states... By the way, you can love, you can love the, the... What's it called? You can love the statue. Okay. You can think it's the greatest statue in the world. That's not the point. No. It's not the point. Yeah. You, you can't hate people. 
Cities and states accelerated their plans to remove Confederate monuments from public property Tuesday as the violence over the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, Virginia moved leaders across the country to plan to wipe away much of the remaining Old South imagery. Gainesville, Florida, where the Daughters of the Confederacy removed a statue of a Confederate soldier known as Old Joe. Durham, North Carolina, we talked about this yesterday, protesters used a rope to pull down a Confederate monument erected in 1924, and overnight in Baltimore, they, uh, many statues across the city were removed by uh, by city workers. The anti-Confederate monument seemed to ensure that other memorials would come down soon. Many local and state governments announced that they would be removing statues and other imagery from public land or consider doing so in the aftermath of Saturday's protests that have, uh, you know, been kind of what everyone's talking about yeah. for the last few days. <laughs> It's crazy. The Lincoln Memorial was vandalized with bright red graffiti early Tuesday morning around 4.30. Did you hear about this? No, I did, but I can't believe it. Officials with the National Park Service said the red spray paint appeared to state, uh, you know, expletive law. So it was something about the law. One of the the memorial's columns overlooking the National Mall. Another instance in silver spray paint was also discovered on the Smithsonian uh, wayfinding sign in on the in Constitution Avenue, working to remove the graffiti is already underway. Uh, so they're trying to save the monument as it's yeah. not defaced. So, <sighs> in other news, a federal district court judge has ordered Costco to pay Tiffany more than 19 million for selling generic diamond engagement rings that were marked using Tiffany's name. <gasps> so they, okay, let, let me get this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so they sold Tiffany diamond rings, diamond rings um, at Costco. Well, rings with the Tiffany name on it. But they really weren't – Costco hadn't – it wasn't Tiffany's se- selling them through Costco? No. They just used the name? Yeah. Oh, well, that's a problem. Why but, would anybody believe that they could get <laughs> Tiffany diamonds or no, rings at Costco? No, I bought a Rolls Costco. Royce at Costco last week. Yeah, that's not a Rolls Royce. Oh, boy. Oh, that it's was Royce. A, that was a Rhodes Royce. Yeah. You know, like the Rhodes, Rolls? Rhodes Bacon Surf. Yes. Yeah. The rings in question had a – a pronged setting that Costco said is commonly known as a Tiffany setting. However, some of the display cases simply describe the rings as Tiffany instead of Tiffany setting or Tiffany style. Tiffany Trump? No, no the sales lady that was selling them, her name was, her Tiffany. Name was Tiffany. It says, hello, my name is oh, Tiffany. she's a great lady. Yeah. I don't know so why they're against the ju- her. The judge ruled on Monday that Tiffany is entitled title to $11 million as profits for trademark infringement plus interest and $8.25 million and punitive damages, which was awarded in a jury by, in October. They also said Costco was uh, permanently prohibited from using Tiffany as a standalone term when selling its products. Uh, the lawsuit was filed in actually tw- 2013 on Valentine's wow. Day, and they call it the equivalent of sending Costco a black rose. Yeah. Where did you get your ring? It's a Tiffany's ring. Where did you get it? Tiffany's? No, I got it at Costco. I in, got a rotisserie chicken, Utah, too. In Salt Lake. As much as I love Costco... I, I am kind of glad that somebody's pushing back because all the stories that I've heard about Costco behind the scenes it kind of portrays them as a bully. Really? You know, like if yeah. uh, they'll they'll get certain vendors in there and, uh, you know, they'll they'll say, oh, we're going to sell it at this price. If you don't like it, then yeah. you can just take your business elsewhere. But as we're a Costco. vendor, I, I'm like, okay. Cause it, but you take all the risk, right? So if I put my yeah. book in Costco – They'll say we want a thousand of them, so you got to put a thousand of them in there. But if they don't sell, you got to take a th- you have to take eight hundred of them back. So it, that does feel like bullying. Except there's nothing better than bullying someone over a foot long hot dog. 
You can bully all day long if it, that hot dog only cost me two bucks or, or a, <laughs> a pizza. It's only a buck fifty. A buck fifty, yeah. and it comes with a soda. See, so bully, bully, bully. And in my personal life, I try not to judge people. Yeah. I try really hard. I fail constantly, but I try no, not you do. to. Yeah, you're horrible. But when I'm walking through the register at like ten o'clock in the morning at Costco and people are throwing down hot dogs, Hold it's on. ten o'clock in the morning. Well, I know, but that's breakfast. Or someone grabs a pizza. It's a, it's a breakfast like, hot dog. That's 10 o'clock, people. What are you doing? Yeah, but what if somebody starts their day at 4 in the morning? That's lunch for them. That's true. You guys start your – you started no. – you start your morning very early. At 7. No, you – no, you no, you well, start normally during the week, but I'm talking there. like Saturday. Oh. It's oh. Saturday. You're there with like three of your kids at 10 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and you're all eating hot dogs. Some parents have kids that wake them up at 4 in the morning. Right. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, it just seems a Kinda little. Can like my kids. Some people, early. yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I think I think my kids are aware of what my one sleep in day is, and they get together and have a little meeting together, and they say, "Okay, let's wake up Dad at you know five what? in the morning on his one way." This doesn't day. go away. The rest of your life, everything will align. The rest of your life for you never to sleep. Hmm. I promise <laughs> it won't matter forever. I have been at it. How long? 23 years, 24 years with my kids, and I, have, I haven't had a good night's sleep forever. Because – so my son is on a camping trip, so we're like loving it, loving it. And then out of nowhere, he'll show up at 5 in the morning even though he's supposed to be on a camping trip or whatever. Well, it started raining, so we all left early. Maybe you saw a bear. Maybe you saw a bear. And we'll get to that story. So scary. Hey, by the way, great news for everybody. A hot bath could have similar benefits to exercise. Could. <laughs> It's not a drill. It's a steamy bath. You don't need to exercise anymore. According to a new study uh, published in the journal Temperature. Mm. Mm-hmm. Self-serving it article, it sounds like. That, that is an, a hot article right there. Totally hot. Found that an hour-long soak in a hot water tub um, produced the same anti-inflammatory and blood sugar responses as 60 minutes of moderate physical activity. Are these the same people that try to convince us that cold showers are good for us? Yes. Is that a problem? Now, is this soaking in the tub or actually taking the bath? No, you, have to, you have to be soaking. So you soak, and then maybe if you need to actually have the, the cleansing property, you could stand up and take a shower. Yeah. Now, what constitutes We're not, soaking? This, this isn't a hygiene activity. This is, okay. this is to lose weight. This is, I mean, this is to get you healthier. I just have some issues with bath. Does it a help if I, if I take like a baster and baste myself Ooh, while I'm soaking? It's a good question. Mm, only, if, only, if you're in the, only if you're in the oven. Okay. But other than that, because it seems that activities that increase heat shock, it shocks the protein. So a warm, a nice hot bath shocks your proteins, and it may help improve blood sugar control. And it's an, it's, an, it's an option for those people that can't just go exercise. Like say you have diabetes and your feet and your legs hurt. And right. so all of a sudden you can go soak and get a benefit, but you'd have to soak in a hot tub or would, take a sauna. That's what I was going to say. Would a sauna work? Sauna would work just but as well. isn't a hot bath dangerous for people, for men who are trying to have children, let's just say? Uh, maybe. I've heard, I've heard as much. Uh, have you? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, um, hmm. I, I didn't know we were going to go there, but <laughs> sure. I would yeah. just... I think that was from Conception Magazine. Yeah. Conception is... <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a less popular magazine. Right. I think it's also a Christopher Nolan movie, too. Conception. Conception. Anyway, um, it, the, the, it has to be for an hour long. 
It's it's equal to a, an hour of cycling. Well, an, an hour, hour of a hot bath. You have to have an hour long session in a one hundred and four degree bath. You're way beyond pruny fingers at that point. Yeah, you Wait are. Wait a minute, you're a raisin by then. When you go to the gym and you get in that hot tub that's at least one hundred four degrees, it, there's a sign that clearly says, "Don't stay in here longer than fifteen minutes." No, but that's because of the bacteria. Hmm. But if you're in your the own gym tub, bacteria, so yeah. your own bacteria is okay. Yeah, absolutely. You got to love your own bacteria. So, what do you do for an hour? Well, like I read I, a book, Netflix. Maybe. You could meditate, maybe, maybe do some Netflix. Oh, alone with my own thoughts. Uh-huh. I Sounds like to. Like that's when I do my best writing. <laughs> I always write in the bathtub. It's just a great place to do your writing. Uh, let's let's get to one more story about a bear breaking into an SUV. Now, apparently, Jeff's been researching this one. Yeah, we've done stories about bears breaking into people's garages before. This one, this bear broke into an SUV because, you know, maybe he's got good taste. Bear <laughs> broke into a, a sport utility vehicle in southwestern Colorado, trashed its interior, and caused it to roll out of a driveway and smash into a mailbox. Oh, boy. So usually it's those darn kids with their bats, but this time it was a bear in an SUV. Right, exactly. Try explaining that to your wife. (laughs) Yeah, right, honey. It was the bear, honey, Mm -hmm. I promise. Neighbors heard the crash early Friday and called law enforcement uh, law enforcement officers in the small city of Durango. Ron Cornelius joked that he doesn't usually get up at 5 a.m. unless there is a bear driving a car down the street. The Durango Herald reports Cornelius took photographs of the car with its steering wheel pulled off oh, and the wow. radio pulled out of the dash. That is one tough bear. So he was he was trying to jack the yeah, he was the, trying to... the innards of this mm-hmm. car. Sure. So the bear's actions may have released the parking brake or put the transmission into neutral, causing the SUV to roll out of a driveway. The SUV's back window was broken. Mm. The bear was gone when authorities arrived. That naughty See, bear. To me, this would sound like it would be a, a selling point to SUV dealerships. Really? This car is so popular, even bears want to drive it. Even the local bears want to drive it. Yeah. Well, well uh, maybe. Anyway, I wanted to – you know how last time we had a bear story, there was this YouTube sensation about uh, the bear breaking into somebody's garage. There's another YouTube video that, that was just put out. About this very story, actually. Sleeping, sleeping and snoring. Startled awake by a roaring. Cause a big bear stealing my car. Not cool. I said, Big bear, stop it now. Everyone told me bears are sweet on my car. Said big bears bound to come. Take it in the nighty night. And he did. And he did. Had me going like hi. Nothing I could do but yell when this bear took off in my sweet SUV, which he then started trashing. And then. Bear backed up into my mailbox <laughs> Just installed it I said no, 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 no Bear's breaking out my back window Tearing, tearing, tearing up my car Stop it now
Tom Hanks, Michael Phelps, Ellen DeGeneres, and Beyonce, they all probably feel intense pressure to go above and beyond while performing in their areas of expertise. Have you ever felt the same pressure to perform? You know, in order to reach your peak performance, many top performers add something vital to their routines that most people wouldn't expect. It's not more work. It's more rest. Brad Stolberg, author of the book Peak Performance, joins us today to talk with us about how to reach your own peak performance. Brad, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. So is that is that is that truly one of the keys is that you got to be you got to be willing to turn it off if you want to be able be able to turn it on. Yeah, that is such a key and and so often overlooked. Um we like to think that when we are grinding away and working hard, that's what creates our best. But what actually creates our best is when we rest and recover in between those periods of hard work. It's the rest that, uh, that I guess helps us. Talk about how you got interested in peak performance, Brad. So, yes, in my former life, um, before I began writing professionally, I was a consultant at um, the large international consulting firm McKinsey & Company. Mm. And it was my first uh, formal job out of school, and I absolutely loved it. I threw myself into the work 110%. Um, The work probably called for 60 to 65-hour weeks. It's a pretty intense job to begin with. And I quickly made that into 80 to 90-hour weeks. I was all in. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and and I loved it. It was intellectually stimulating. I was young. I was having an impact. I was working with really smart people. And for a while, I performed really, really well at that clip. But, oh, about a year to a year and a half into the gig, um, I just started to feel burnt out Uh, emotionally, physically, cognitively. My performance was suffering, and it all caught up to me. Um, So at that point, I was fortunate to to be able to have the opportunity to pursue graduate school in public health. And when I went to public health school, I was keenly interested in um, really health outside of a medical sense, but health, what does it take to thrive, and how can people perform at their best? without burning out, without making some of the mistakes that I did? Is it even possible to be a peak performer and do so over the long haul? Uh, so that piqued my interest. And then after school, I began writing, and, and this book is a culmination of my research. And, and what was amazing, I think, about that example is be, you loved what you were doing. You were driven by it. It was exciting. You were passionate about it. You were totally into it, which is probably, I guess, why you ended up working more and more. It, it seems like that's one of the normal tendencies of once you start loving what you do, you you work more at it, but the more you work at it, you simultaneously probably are harming yourself. Exactly. You know, my co-author on the book, his name is Steve Magnus. He coaches a bunch of uh, world-class Olympic caliber runners. And um, he always says that the hardest part of his job is not having these type A intrinsically motivated individuals push hard. It's holding them back and getting them to rest. And I think it's a common trap. The more that you love your work, the more that you're you're likely to exert yourself to a point of diminishing returns. Yeah. Does in fact, uh, I read somewhere about the example of Bernard Lag- Laggett, uh, one of the American runners who would always take a. He's one of the best American runners there is, and he, he would always take like a five week break at the end of every year. Yeah, exactly. That's correct. Um, and he's he's run at the world-class level into his 40s. So not only has he been one of the best, but he's been one of the best, I want to say it's five Olympic cycles over oh, wow. 15, 16 years. Yeah, it's just remarkable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we spoke with Legat, what, what he, he alluded to is this end-of-season break he takes every year. Um, and just like you said, he'll take five weeks off where he doesn't run at all. 
and he credits his sustainability to that break, and, and not just for physical rejuvenation, but for psychological rejuvenation as well, allowing him to kind of turn the gas off, um, like I said, not only physically, but, but relax his focus a little bit. And, I mean, I guess part of that is, I mean, I, you get it if you're a runner because just the physical, uh, the toll it must take on your body, but I guess intellectually, mentally, we need that rest every bit as much as anybody else. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's there's a wealth of research that um, that, like I said in the opening, although we think that we're getting smarter or learning or problem solving when we're actually deep at work, um, it often happens that those breakthrough in thoughts and the way that our brain retains, consolidates, and connects information that that happens when we're at rest. And I like to think of this on three different levels. On a micro level, it's just about taking short breaks throughout the day. I'm sure most of your listeners have had an experience where they had an aha moment or some kind of breakthrough thought while they were in the shower or while they were commuting home from work right? or while they were perhaps on a run or a walk. And these are all examples of micro breaks where you just allow your mind to turn off a little bit. And it's when your conscious mind, your effortful thinking mind turns off that your subconscious or your more creative mind starts to work. Uh, one of my favorite studies that I came across in researching the book showed that although we spend the vast majority of our waking hours doing effortful thinking, that is focusing on something, over 40% of our creative thoughts come during these transient periods of rest. Hmm. So throughout the day, micro breaks, really, really important, conducive to problem solving and creativity. The second level I like to think about is sleep. So all the information that we're exposed to throughout the day, there's such a wealth of information. So not only the things that we worked on, but the people we met, the color of the car that we park next to in the parking lot. Our brain has so much to deal with. And it's only when we sleep that our brain, like I said, goes through all that information, makes sense of it, decides what's worth filing away, and decides how to file it away. And that um, all so takes sleep, place while sleeping. Which important. is So if you're neglecting your sleep, you're neglecting your body's ability to organize your life, your experience. 100%. I think that it's such a trap that people fall into that they think they can be more productive by sleeping less. And I came out of this book realizing that sleep is one of the most productive things that you can do. If you're not getting at least seven hours of sleep, that's the lowest hanging fruit for so many people, not only for their performance, but for their general uh, mental and physical health as well. Isn't that funny? And it's because, again, we, we have this, this habit, of this belief that action is supreme and the key and movement. And so it's almost like we don't even look at sleep as a value add because it's not enough yeah. action. It's not enough. And we do the same thing at work. We don't think of somebody sitting there at their off in their desk meditating for 10 minutes. We wouldn't see that as valuable. We would see it as lazy. Right, and, and that's such a, a paradigm shift that I hope that listeners make and I hope that people that read the book make is that rest is not something that's passive. Rest is not at the expense of work. Rest is a part of the work. So rest is a very active process. The brain is in overdrive, just in a different way than we're accustomed to when we're resting. So my framing in my own life, because I'm one of those intrinsically driven OCD you know, type A pushers, I've started to frame rest not as separate from the work, but again, as a part of the work. And it's made it easier for me to rest when I think about it like that. Yeah, you've got to. And um, it's funny, too, because I guess we we laugh or I guess we, we used to revere the person that had four hours of sleep and they could just make everything work. But I almost pity them because 
it's got to be doing something to your abilities if if even if even if you seem to function well are you just borrowing are you just living on borrowed time like we hear president trump sleeps 4 hours i know people that can only sleep 5 hours a night does it eventually catch up with you or are there some humans that are kind of superhuman that way it eventually catches up to you i've yet to come across a superhuman um i don't think that there has been a superhuman that has been studied in the literature um, I think that you can burn really bright for a very short period of time, but kind of like what happened to me, it's it's just unsustainable. And, you know, without getting political on the show, looking at President Trump, a lot of people that are onlookers on both sides of the aisle have commented that, you know, when he tends to be a loose cannon, it comes after hours where he's up tweeting at two in the morning. That's true. And huh? there's a direct line between sleep and willpower. And the yeah. less you sleep, the less willpower you have. So it's it's not surprising. No, that's actually it's it's there's got to be something going on there. Uh, we're speaking with Brad Stolberg. He is the author of the book Peak Performance, and uh, he's also um, a, a columnist for the for New York and Outside magazines. Um, and today we are we're we're doing what we can to understand how to be a better uh, performer. In the book, you also you talk about kind of a uh, a, a a process or a, like a growth formula. What what. What is, the, what, what is the formula to peak performance? So the overarching formula is, um, is exactly what you said. It's something that in the book we call the growth equation. And that is this notion of stress plus rest equals growth. Stress plus rest equals growth. Correct. So, so stress is good, I guess, with rest equals growth. And so when you have stress without rest not good, uh, or rest without stress, not good. Exactly. And, and by stress, I think that we should pause for a minute. When I'm speaking of stress, and is it's applied in this growth equation in the book, not talking about stress is you know, maybe a conventional definition of the nerves or the angst you feel before a performance review at work, or if you're in a fight with your significant other or your child. Um, we use stress, my co-author and I, in a much more biological sense. So some kind of stimulus that will challenge the body or the mind. Hmm. Um, I think the easiest example to bring this equation to life is how would you make a muscle grow? And the way to make a muscle grow is you go to the gym and you lift the weight, right? Right. But if you pick up a weight that is way too heavy, way too much stress, what ends up happening is you either quit and you're like, I don't want to do this. You lose motivation, you're done. Or you might injure yourself. You might throw out your back trying to hoist it up. That's too much stress. The flip side of that is if you go to the gym and you pick up a one-pound weight, you could sit there all day, every day, curling that one-pound weight, and your muscle probably won't grow. Not enough stress to elicit growth. So to make your muscle grow, you have to find the sweet spot of stress, but then you also have to follow it up with rest. Because even if you find that perfect dose of stress that makes you ever so slightly uncomfortable, if you just sit there and lift that weight all day without resting, your muscle will literally burn out. Hmm. So it's about finding the right dose of stress, following it with rest, and that's what elicits growth. And the example I gave is, is very physical, but throughout the book we discuss how this equation applies to cognitive and emotional growth as well. Because, I mean, it really is the same thing. You've, you, if you have too much, you, you probably just shrink and evaporate. If you have too little, you don't grow, so you've got to find the happy spot. And I guess, how do you find, how do you find your happy spot of stress, uh, how do, how do you find it personally? I love this question because it really gets into the application. So I'm glad that you asked it, right? Conceptually, everyone understands it, but how to apply it, a yeah. little bit trickier. 
So the the way that I like to think about this is it shouldn't be something that makes you so anxious that you feel your heartbeat palpitating in your neck or that you're losing sleep at night. So if you're taking on a project at work or in your personal life, if you're thinking about having a child, maybe you're newly married, and the thought of that just makes you physiologically anxious and you're losing sleep about it, that's probably too much stress. Hmm. The flip side is if you take on a project at work or you speak with your significant other about taking on something new in your relationship and it just feels almost boring, like you're going through the motions, that's probably not enough stress for growth. That, there you risk becoming complacent, I'd say. Yeah. So you want to find something that arouses you and excites you. And maybe you have this thought where if I did it 10 times, I could probably succeed eight or nine, but I'm not positive if I could go 10 for 10. I really have to work hard to ensure that I'd be able to go 10 for 10. And that's the kind of good growth promoting challenge, good growth promoting stress. Well, and, um, in and this book, I call it a just manageable challenge, a just manageable challenge, because this is um, this gets into that use stress idea. This gets into flow this that, that you get into this space where you need to be aroused. So if life is boring for you, you're in trouble. But if life is too arousing for you that you always want to sleep and avoid it, you're also in trouble. So there's somewhere in between. And I guess part of that is just we just need to keep moving our our performance up up that channel, right? So when we get really good at something, we would slide down and it might become boring to us. So then we need to find a way to get it to be more challenging. Exactly. And, and, and you know, it's funny because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse my own words. I said that the application is tricky. And I think it's tricky because a lot of people, and myself included, I'm, I'm trying to practice what I preach. I think I'm getting a little bit better. We just kind of go through our days without the awareness to even realize, right, are, are, are we in that channel? But if you bring some acute awareness to your life and, and you pick an area of your life that you might want to grow, get better in, whatever you want to call it, and then you just ask yourself, what's the next logical step? Most people that I've worked with come to, can, can come to an answer. So I think that, that's another good way to think about it, right? Yeah. So maybe, again, maybe it's at work. Maybe you're training for a marathon. Um, maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe you're the head of a company and you're thinking of this on an organizational level. I think a really good way to think of it is what is a capability or capacity that I would like to improve in and what do I see as the next logical step? And then that would take you to the next logical step of peak performance. Exactly. That's powerful. Powerful. Uh, let's take a break, Brad. We're, we're talking with Brad Stolberg, the author of the book Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. He's helping us understand uh, sometimes to get performance, peak performance, you need to take a break, but you also need to kind of find that sweet spot of stress, not where you're overstressed, not where you're understressed, but where you're, you're continually in the groove of, um, of growth. It's powerful stuff, folks. Helping us all uh, be peak performers. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Talking peak performance and the book, Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. 
and it's written by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And uh, Brad's joining us on the line right now. Brad is a researcher, a writer, a speaker, and a coach on health and science and uh, the science of human performance. Uh, Brad, thank you again for being with us today. Yeah, thanks. I'm really enjoying our conversation. Me too. And and you you've you've taught us that. So all we really need to do first and foremost is identify what we want to improve, like whatever the goal is, and then ask ourselves a very subtle question, but logical question. But what what like what's the next logical step? to reach that goal. And in a way, we all we all know, right? I mean, our heart, our conscience, uh, and um, our subconscious knows what we need to be doing. We just yeah, got to put I it would, down. Yeah, we just, we, right. We, we, we just got to do it um, and, and, and do it in, in a non-reckless, you know, smart way. Getting back to this growth equation, that when you take on that next logical go, what, what we might call stress or a just manageable challenge, it's important to make sure that you're building in some periods for rest and reflection, almost like so you can absorb the work so your body and mind can adapt to this new state um, in, in a healthy way. Is it what, – what is it that exhausts us? Is it, is it just the sheer number of choices that we have to make every day, like from putting our socks on to you know, get, getting to work on time? Um, is, it, is it the number of choices that we have to make? Is it the quality of choices? Is it the depth? Is it our lack of ability to do this? What is it that, that so exhausts us and actually steals our peak performance? I think it's all of those things. Um, so, you know, we, we live in a world where we are constantly connected. Um, and, and digital technology has so many advantages. I use it. I, I love it. And one of the disadvantages is, is that we're, we're always reachable. And there are always things happening that, that are fighting for our attention and that we can tune our attention to. So I think that what, what's happening now more than ever is that people are just so busy. Um, and, and, and there's very little space to, to do deep focus work or to check out and rest because we're constantly checking in on something or constantly thinking about the next thing that we have to do. And I think that's what wears us out. Mm. Um, you know, a simple analogy is imagine if a runner was doing a workout where they were running three times one mile really hard. And throughout that mile, they got alerts on their cell phone. They were thinking about emails that they had to write. They stopped every 30 seconds to open up a new browser. Yeah. The quality of the workout would go to crap. And it would be enjoyable and they'd never want to do it again. And that's how a lot of us go through our days. It's so true. We're like it, you would never expect a runner, um, like a like a, especially like a world class runner, to to allow any of those distractions while they're doing their practice. It, but we do it all day long, and we even we actually call all of it work, right? Because it's yeah, it, it's all work. You know, I'm just doing my social media. What you don't want me to grow my social media? So it's but in the exactly. end, and, it's and, not and work. I think that, right. It, well. Or maybe it is work. You know, for me as a writer, social media, it is a part of my job, and it's something that I focus on. Um, what I've gotten a lot better at in, in what I would just recommend to, to listeners is to be really deliberate and mindful about when you're doing it. I think when people run into a problem is when throughout the day and throughout the constancy of, of, of whatever they're doing, they're constantly checking their social media. They're constantly opening up their email. They're constantly surfing the Internet. Um, I think it's much better to, to make two or three half-hour blocks during the day where you say, you know what, this is my time for Twitter, Facebook, this is my time to browse the Internet, whatever your thing may be, but not to let it encroach on those periods of good, hard, deep-focus work. Hmm. 
Because, too, I, I just noticed yesterday I, I receive an email, which was a distraction. Then I have to think about it, then answer the email or find the thing that they want and then send it to them and then hope that that's good enough. And then they interrupt me again 10 minutes later. So it's almost like we've, we've actually built a bridge of these constant interruptions. And you're saying, well, you can move all of those interruptions to three times a day. So we're not. Yeah, and you know, th- three times a day is just a, an arbitrary. Yeah, example. some for number. Some people, yeah, two for some people, it's four, but but whatever number makes sense. Um, exactly, and, and you know, while we're on this topic, another really powerful lesson that came out of the book is to remove the object of distraction from your line of sight. Because, hmm. like you said, even if I'm not constantly responding to emails, if I see them coming in, or if I see the little red light on my phone beeping. It takes a lot of energy and willpower just to resist checking the thing. Yeah. So there's all kinds of research that shows that the best way to really get in the zone and do good, deep, growth-promoting work is to remove those distractions from your from your literal visual sight. And I, I've, uh, I think it was Benjamin Hardy I was talking to, who's a writer, and he he said he when he writes, he even turns his internet off. He turns everything off, puts pretty much everything on airplane mode, so that that so that those lights aren't beeping and coming in. Yeah, you know, it's 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 Ben 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 has company amongst a lot of uh, a lot of colleagues and writers. So when I was writing this book, I actually had a two hundred ten dollar computer that that I'd never gotten an internet card installed on mm. uh, for the manuscript. So when I could go write, I was just writing. That's a great idea, and it's cheaper. <laughs> and you don't yeah, exactly. and, and you're stuck. You you all you can do with that one is write. Um, yep. Is it because I guess too you might want to help us blow up this multitasking idea because we a lot of us feel like we're really good multitaskers. Is that is the, is there such a thing? So there is such a thing. It's one percent of the population. Um, so the way that odds work, that's probably not you because that's <laughs> just how statistics work. Yeah. Um, and to show that that's probably not you, some researchers at Stanford recruited uh, individuals for a study. And the, the key selection criteria was that these people self-identified as great multitaskers. Hmm. So these were people who firmly believed that they have mastered multitasking um, and described it as a real core skill that they have. And then the researchers put them in MRI machines that allowed the researchers to look at their brain activity. And what they found is that even these people that said that they're great multitaskers, when they were quote-unquote multitasking, they were actually, at a millisecond level, switching between two tasks. And as a result, the quantity and the quality of their work suffered. So they had them in a single-tasking situation, a multitasking situation. They looked at brain activity, and they looked at work output. And what they found is, again, brain activity switching. So you're kind of like that runner again, constantly checking alerts. And the quantity and the quality of their work suffered. Um, so again, you know, I, I need to be honest to the science. They did identify that 1% of the population can multitask effectively. Um, but even amongst people that think that they can, they, they tend not to be able to. Yeah. 80% of the population thinks they can, but only 1% of actual self, self-selected multitaskers could. Um, that's interesting. Exactly. That is fascinating. And other th- so really what we're doing is we're just monotasking at a very rapid rate. And do it in doing so, and in doing so, you actually just decrease your success, your effectiveness. Right, because you have all these, you have all these, uh, these switching costs per se. It's so right? true. Like if you're constantly switching between tasks, it takes some time and in mental energy to switch between doing two things. Wow, you know, again, another myth that we've got to blow up, that we've got to, we've got to get out of our heads. 
Brad, um, the book's a wonderful thing. Talk about what's the one thing we can do. I always like to ask at the end of the interview, what's the one thing that each and every one of us could do today that would have a dramatic impact on our ability to get peak performance? So I'm going to come back to a, a core. It's a great question. Thank you. I'm going to come back to a core theme that, that we discussed. And I think the one thing that listeners can do today is bring some awareness to your life, identify an area in which you want to improve, grow, get better, and just ask yourself, what's the next logical step? What's a just manageable challenge that'll make me ever so slightly uncomfortable, but I think I can succeed, but I know I'm really going to have to put my all into it and set up a plan to take on that challenge. And then attack that plan. Uh, Brad, we appreciate your great stuff. Brad Stolberg's his name. The book is Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. Uh, and really become aware and then ask yourself, identify your goal and ask yourself, what's the one thing? You already know you should be doing it. What's the one logical thing that you should be doing? And then get on it. Get on it. This isn't brain surgery. It's just your performance. It's creating a better life for you, for everyone around you. And that is the goal of the Matt Townsend Show is to help you be the good in the world. We will continue the journey in just a few minutes. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, one of the goals of, I think, anybody that is about to uh, maybe rob a bank, steal something, ought to be to make sure you either have a good disguise so no one can know who you are or a good getaway, right? So uh, we always talk about how the getaways don't always turn out the way people anticipate. But apparently this uh, – our, our next uh, story, the guy didn't think it through very well. Well, or did he? Because he uh, – it's a burglar that tries to disguise himself as the son. Yeah. The son, not like the child. That would – Seems like it would be difficult to pull off. The so there, there's this 51-year-old who's accused of stealing a towel, then trying to disguise himself as the son, as you said. <laughs> uh, and this is in northwest Florida. Drakenberg, his name is Eric Drakenberg, uh, he allegedly entered a private home in Walton County, Florida, and proceeded to steal a towel – and uh, the, uh, let's see, did an un- unlawfully deprive the owner of the use of the towel. Hmm. When deputies were investigating the incident, Drakenberg was disguising himself as the son with the intent to obstruct the due execution of law. The report <laughs> does not specify how Drakenberg attempted to pull off such a deception. Additionally, it is unclear whether or not the man was trying to pass as the actual son or as a copy of a publication. Such as the, the Sun, Sun Sentinel, yeah, the Sun, which might be referred to as the Sun. When uh, when asked about these two matters, a spokeswoman for the Walton County Sheriff's Office told the Huffington Post that it looks like the Sun is the name he gave for himself to the deputy. So, he's uh, what's your to, name? I'm the Sun, the Sun Sentinel. The whole publication, yeah, but better the Sun than the Moon. That's true. I mean, he was in a towel. Yeah, yeah, better the Sun than the Moon. Wow, what people will do. And by the way, weird story out of Florida. Yeah. Of maybe, all places. Maybe he should have disguised himself as like Bob Woodward or Bernstein. Yeah. You know? He could have been anybody. He could a, have. A staff member at the paper, but maybe not the paper itself. Not the paper itself. What are you? I'm a newspaper. Anyway, there's many ways to hide, folks. Uh, sometimes it might be better to just not uh, commit the crime in the first place. Anyway, this is the Matt Townsend Show helping you along this crazy journey of life. It will continue the journey next hour. 
You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side. Happy days are here again. It is roller coaster day. This is the day back in, on uh, August 16th. Uh, 20, oh, 1898 is when they first filed the first patent for the roller coaster. Today, uh, he's been doing the roller coaster thing all day today. <laughs> that um, Terry loved that. You're supposed to keep your hands and your your hands in the ride at all times, or you get hit in the head. That's right. It's all fun and games. Ah! Hmm. Okay. Well, with so much turmoil going on in the country about uh, racism and the ability to accept and love one another, as we are all taught to do as children, um, today Brian Willoughby, our one of our great professors here in the uh, School of Family Life, uh, Brian's going to um, be talking to us about how to have faith in your interfaith marriage. So if you in your marriage, if you're married to somebody that has a different uh, religious background, a different faith set than you, how to actually make that marriage work, because it could cause big problems. And the last thing you need when you have a country with all of this tension would be a marriage with all of that tension. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Netflix. Maybe Netflix can be your commonality. Have you noticed that Netflix is your go to, Jeff? You always go to Netflix when there's tension. Isn't it the answer and cause of most of life's problems? No, you know what it is? It's because you used to go to food, but because you're on this diet, maybe you can't go to food. So now you're going to Netflix more. But I don't feel like I'm watching any more TV either. You're probably just thinking about it a lot more. Don't you think? Yeah. You look great, by the way. You can't even – you have to wear suspenders to keep your pants on. (laughs) This is great. How much weight have we lost so far? Well, it was the three and a half pounds in one week. As of yesterday. Yeah, and then I went to the movies and had some popcorn. So So I could have gained all that back. Who knows? Now you're up four. (laughs) You've got that roller coaster. See, that's why we're celebrating roller coasters today. So we'll get to Brian Willoughby. We also have got some great uh, empty news that we'll get to as well. Um, A Florida woman admits to anger problems after attacking her neighbor's property with a bat and a cinder block. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, how do you uh, resolve your neighborhood disputes? Well, I don't use a bat or a cinder block. I mean, I, I like actually a, try not to get involved in my neighborhood. You go disputes. with a, a two by four. I send my wife a over pickaxe. Don't call her that. Mm. That is rude. I'm She's sorry. a wonderful I'm person. Sorry. You don't. I'm call sure her if I, I'm sure if I met her, you would. You'd she love her. would be more like a, she's a, a shovel. I, I no, she's a she's a. Saint is what she is. Okay. I'm not familiar with that tool. Yeah. It's different. Um, We also will be talking about a man, a wanted man, who hands himself in after an unflattering mugshot. See, that's what would bother me. I did. I just did a photo shoot the other day. I hate having my picture taken. So being arrested, the most the thing, the place I'd feel the most pressure would be in the mugshot. So maybe you ought to just do whatever you can as a police officer to 
make them get the worst picture possible. Why? Because then that would go out. People would see that. Yeah, but when they're trying to capture this person, the uh, the person will they, be upset. Yeah. So if they if they that's how you do it. You make them take really ugly, embarrassing pictures. That way, if they ever run on you, then you can just put those pictures up. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's one way to do it. We'll also be, of course, talking with our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. We always like to do a little check-in there to find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. And we've got a hero story. All of that uh, straight ahead. By the way, imagine giving your coworker one of your organs. If I needed a kidney, could I count on you guys to give me a kidney? I only have uh, type A positive kidneys, so I don't think they'll. I don't think they'll match up with yours. I only have two, so. Yeah, so I have a feeling if I had a kidney problem, I'm pretty much dead. He had three, but he already donated one to Don Shaline. Right. Well, maybe Don would give me that one. Well. Don's a giving guy. Oh, well. well text him. See what he'd say. That's the hero of the day. The hero of the day is somebody that gave their kidney to a coworker. for heaven's sakes. That is a true, true hero. Uh, we'll get to all of that fun, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? After the uh, press conference yesterday, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan tweeted Tuesday that uh, President Trump blamed both sides for the violence that broke out over the weekend at a white supremacist rally in Virginia, that it must be made clear that white supremacy is repulsive. Ryan said such bigotry is counter to all this country stands for, and there could be no moral ambiguity. Many of the responses Ryan received came from people calling him out for supporting Trump and his agenda. Okay, so so Ryan jumped on it yeah. and called it repulsive. Right. Did Ryan make any comments that both sides were to blame? Uh, no. Okay. He also didn't mention Trump's name. Mm. He just talked about bigotry. Yeah. Uh, Mitch McConnell, yeah, majority leader, uh, this morning fires back at Trump's good people. He said there were many good people on the side of the, the white supremacist side. Okay, yeah. Uh, he said there's no such thing as a good neo-Nazi. Right. That's Mitch McConnell's comments this morning. They're, yeah. Not, not good Christian people. Not good neo-Nazis. No such thing. But right. what if they kiss their grandma and go visit her in the old person home? Well, they better... You know, pray that there's no minorities around, Grandma. <laughs> Scary. You, that's that's a very so. By the way, two strong statements from GOP leaders. Yeah. Uh, I guess needing to take these really strong stands because President Trump isn't. He's not. Yeah. Okay. In other news, An- Anthony Scaramucci confirmed he's working on a sitcom. Merch. Potentially titled Attack of the Swamp Monsters, about a Wall Street entrepreneur who gets into politics to the great dismay of longtime political hacks who go straight for the jugular, TMZ reports. <laughs> the project follows Scaramucci's short-lived stint as White House communications director, which ultimately resulted in his, the resignation of the former press secretary, Sean Spicer, ousting former chief of staff, Reince Priebus. An alternative title for the sitcom is 10 Days in July. <laughs> making it pretty clear the show is about Scaramucci's experience in the White House. You'll have to hold your horses, though. The show is still a long way from heading to air, though a major Hollywood producer is said to be interested. Is this... Tom Hanks? Is this... Uh, maybe. Is the is the, is the the person in this show that uh, has not yet been written... Yes. Um, was he fired by someone with a spray tan? Possibly. Hmm. Possibly. So we'll see. Intriguing. Not, not sure if it'll be a drama or a comedy. Right, right, right. And how much material can you get out of the 10 days he worked in the White House? It was kind of, yeah. It sounds like it's both. A drama 
And a comedy. So a dramedy? And a tragedy. A dramedy? A dramedy. A dr- yeah, right. Or right. a comedrama. Mm. Comedrama. It's, a, it's like a turducken for TV. Yeah. Nice. I love turducken. Uh, national crisis, international crisis averted this morning, or last night, I guess. Daniel Craig confirmed officially he will be returning for James Bond 25. Okay. This, this is the guy that hated Bond, didn't want to be connected to it. Right. Made a lot of money. He explained that in the interview. Oh, he did good. He was on uh, Stephen Colbert's show last night. It'll okay. be his fifth Bond film. It'll be out the 8th of November 2019. Yeah. He did say he thinks this will be his last Bond film. He let someone else take the reins. Now, what he said was when he made the comments about how he'd rather slit his wrists yeah. and do another Bond film, he says that was right like three days after they'd finished filming. Right. He goes, it'd be the equivalent of you're in the delivery room, the woman just had the baby, and you're like, you want to have another one? Well, or it's like, yeah, in Jeff's case, it's more like being in the lobby. In the lobby. Having just had the baby in between the two doors, the front door and the second door into the lobby. So he says, with time, letting it breathe a little bit, yeah, I can do another one. Hold on. He changed his opinion. But he said that that while he was still basically in the the beginning of the promotion of the movie. Right. But he had just finished all the physical nature of... You know, shooting this whole project that should take months on end to do so, and he just said he was a little tired at the moment, and he reacted okay. inappropriately. By the way, my wife would be very careful to preface this by telling people, uh, don't have your babies in the lobby. However, we are going to save quite a bit of money because we didn't. she didn't labor in the hospital, and they had originally charged us, charged us for the labor. So she ah. contacted them and said, I didn't labor in the hospital. Hold on. I labored in my car. So I, they're going to waive that charge. Oh, nice. How much is a laboring charge? It was over $3,000. Wow. Wow. So, I, you know what? If you guys ever want to labor at my house, I'll do it for 1000 bucks. $3,000. 3000 bucks. to labor. Yeah, you'll even clean up, too. Mm, no, we just do it in the backyard. Okay. Grab the hose. Um, and finally, people are noticing bikes randomly parked on Seattle sidewalks. If they're painted bright orange or green, they're part of the new bike share pilot program launched by the city last month. Okay. Two private companies, Lime Bike and Spin, are permitted by the city to operate. Neither company relies on docking stations, oh, which wow. is why you'll find bikes scattered across the city. I like the idea that people can rent a bike for cheap, a cheap price to get around town. I think it's going to be a problem if the company doesn't pick up people's bikes off people's lawns and if they're just sitting around on the sidewalks, not redistributed. Yeah, they're just, well, they're all going to end up at one lazy guy's house. On Spin's website, it advises users to park a spin anywhere responsible as if it were your own bike. Lime Bike advises users to park Lime Bike by a bike rack or at a designated area. Bikes have been left on sidewalks, part in parks, but some have been left in more obscure places. Twitter, a Twitter user snapped a picture of three Lime Bikes. Uh, Lime bike bikes thrown over an overpass near a downtown area. People just got done with it and chucked it. <laughs> Do they have like a GPS chip on them or something? How does say, the company know where to pick them up? That would I was thinking that'd be like one of the only ways you could really do this because yeah. you go apparently you you rent it with an app. But then how do you find your bike? Do you just stumble across one? Like, hey, I want to ride a bike right now. Well, or apparently yeah. just look up. If, you, if you're walking under an overpass, one should be falling right in front of you at any second. What one, if it was some homeless guy and you took his bike? 
Hey, get back here. That's my line bike. One angry home <laughs> homeowner says it's like personal property. Don't throw your trash in other people's yards. Oh, wow. So that's their problem with their bike share. Unbelievable. That is, uh, you know, I like the idea of a bike share because, um, but it seems like a lot of the bikes might end up just, you know, in some guy in the suburbs house because maybe you don't like to ride the bike into work. You just like to ride the bike home from work. So you take a, a, a bike from the city. Yeah, because maybe one way is uphill and the other yeah. way is downhill. Or maybe you don't want to get all sweaty, so you take the train in and then, you, hey, I think I want to ride a bike home. And then you just take a bike to the suburbs. So what they ought to do is go check all the suburbs. I'm just saying. Or always check at the bottom of the hill, right? Because people will ride the bike down. No one's going to ride the bike up the hill. Well, I think, they, I think the trains, you can put the bike on the front of the train and then get on the train. Isn't that how it works? I don't know. I've never taken a train. Hmm. I live in the West. We have cars. It's all about cars here. Cars and congestion. Yeah. That's what we call the good old West. CC, cars and congestion. Uh, okay. So, so much to cover, so much to get to. Uh, we have some empty news, Jeff. Um, if you want to talk to us about uh, the Florida woman with the anger problem issue. By the way, weird story out of Florida. Yeah, <laughs> imagine that. How do you typically handle your neighborly disputes or, you know, whether chips. it's... chocolate? I just chips. eat a lot of chips. Chocolate chips, uh, potato chips, but tortilla chips. you don't chips. try to resolve it with that neighbor who's the offender? Uh, I don't. Really? I mean, I, I've, I don't know that I've ever had a real neighbor. Well, I've had a neighborly problem. Yeah, we've had a problem once. Didn't you have like a mafia member in your neighborhood or something? Uh, yeah, I don't like to talk about that because okay. he's still alive and around. But okay. um, I do – I have a uh, – I had a neighbor in my old neighborhood that didn't like my kids hitting balls into his yard. Ah, uh, we had one of those. Yeah, that was intense. So we had a little argument and just – he threatened to kill me. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. this this lady might have some anger issues. Okay. You, you tell Maybe me, I can as, as a doctor, you tell me yeah. whether or not she has anger issues. I'll let you know. So uh, she beat on her neighbor's front door with a baseball bat and threw a cinder block at a neighbor's vehicle. Wow. And uh, she's 25 years old. She told police that she felt threatened by the man. Yeah. She reportedly told officers she meant to hit her neighbor with the cinder block. I didn't mean to hit. Yeah, I meant to hit the neighbor. But the man's girlfriend said uh, he wasn't outside at the time. So she wanted to hit the neighbor, but mm. he wasn't outside. So she had to settle for throwing it at his car. Yeah, that's an anger issue. Really? I think the minute you're picking up a, a brick for any purpose other than building... Maybe it was building or bodybuilding, maybe and then was, it, it was too much for her, and so she dropped it, she and she trying happened to, to be near the car. Uh, I think you're giving her the benefit of the doubt. I think she was trying to build a bridge to the neighbor by putting the building, putting the block through the neighbor's hood. Okay. Yeah. Maybe she was doing him a favor. Maybe she, he, she wanted him to be able to collect on some insurance money. Yeah. Again, I think you're, I think you're really – Giving the benefit of the doubt. And maybe she knew that he had a very low, low deductible. We're talking like $200 How would she know that? How would she know that, really? She doesn't know that. She could have been his uh, insurance agent. Yeah. I'm going to just bet that she's got an anger management issue. I mean, it just seems like the data leads us there. So, So what do you do? How do you get over something like this? You take a really deep breath, 
You put the bricks away. You shut your garage. You go inside. You uh, you pour yourself a drink, non-alcoholic, of course, because you don't want to you don't want to create problems. And then you just watch, just like the rest of us. You you watch uh, Bachelorette or Bachelor in Paradise Cove or Cake Wars. You you watch Cake Wars. You do whatever you can to transfer your anger and frustration to some other project or or show. And so take that anger and take it to Cake Wars or Chef Wars or go to the History Channel and watch about real real war. Or maybe don't knock on the door with a bat. Maybe just use your hand or your finger if the doorbell's working. Yeah. But if you've got an anger issue, you probably ought not be going over to the neighbor's house. So before you go there, you need to know how to control your anger. And the neat thing about, I think, Florida and what Florida officials will now be able to do with this lady is send her to a court-mandated anger management program where she will learn the skills to control her anger. Okay. Sans bricks, sans bats. I think it just goes back to that old saying, if you can't say something nice, don't throw a cinder block at your neighbor's car. Man, was mama prophetic, wasn't she? Put that on a meme, folks. Put that on a bumper sticker. Drive around your neighborhood with that. That's why we're here, to give you the light, the insights that you need to live a healthier, happier life. Up next, we're going to be talking about how to have faith in your interfaith marriage. Dr. Ryan Willoughby will be with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us right now, Dr. Brian Willoughby. Brian is an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University and uh, was the director of the Relate Institute, um, and also a non- which was a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. But Dr. Willoughby just uh, barely finished his new book. He's the co-author of the book, The Marriage Paradox. And uh, today you're here to talk to us about one trend in marriage, more and more people are bu- are marrying people out of their faith, out of their belief yep. system. That's true. So why? What's going on? Well, one of the big reasons is just because how we find people has changed. It yeah. used to be that church was the primary way I meet that's right. people. Where, that's where right. that's you where go to the social. Is. Yep. And, and that was also because one of the main mechanisms through a wedding was my church. Right? That's right. I wanted to get married that's in right. my church with my priest or my reverend. Um, a lot of that has changed. Marriage isn't connected to religion as much as it was before. And so because of that, because now I'm looking for someone that makes me happy, yeah. that we get along with, that has similar life goals as I do, um, you're starting to get more people where religion might be part of the factor, but it's not the main motivator anymore. Interesting. It's So instead of getting married uh, by meeting at the church or whatever, you meet on Tinder. Right. Well, <laughs> th- those might not be long-term relationships. Oh, okay. Match.com, Match. eHarmony. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you meet on those. But um, so more and more uh, couples have interfaith marriages. And so talk to us about that because it seems like there could be some really big issues yeah, that come to is. play. In, in fact, interfaith marriages are still – so there's, there's, a, there's a list of things that we know from the research – that regardless of what your relationship is like, put you at risk for marital problems and even divorce. And interfaith marriage is one of those is really, really 
Um, is it actually that big of a deal? It is that yeah. big of a deal that when I marry someone outside my faith – now, this does assume that I am active in my faith. Yeah. So if I just check a box and say, well, yeah, I, I went to a yeah. Catholic mass when I was eight and that was the last time. That's not what we're talking about. Right. But if I'm active in my faith and I marry someone that's active in a different faith, that is a risk factor for divorce. Now, why? Because um, most of the faiths would share the same principles generally. Right. Yeah. It, and generally that's true from a moral standpoint. But – the nitty-gritty kind of day-to-day life that each religious faith tends to mm. emphasize is a little bit different. And and also, although the religious doctrinal beliefs are obviously going to be different, they tend to have slight variations on moral codes, on kind of general values on the world. And that's that's kind of where the rubber hits the road for a lot of these couples is that our var- our value set might be a little bit different. And even more specifically, the biggest issue with an interfaith couple is actually just how we spend our time. We might be in two churches that are pretty similar when it comes to beliefs, but that's two different church services we need to go to. That's there right. might be different obligations during the week for both of us. Um, and and then because of that, because there's some decisions we have to make about our time, once we have kids, that's where a lot of conflict Yeah, which, where who, where's the child going to go? Right. Yep. And which, which set of values and specific doctrinal beliefs will we teach those kids yeah. in the home? Well, and then, I mean, then all of a sudden, how much you donate to your church? Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you're a donate, financial issue. If your wife likes to donate 10% and you like to donate 7%. Right. Yeah. Or if we both like to donate 10, but it's going different directions, are we really going to give up 20% of our income? Interesting. Boy, and then the power, the control, like, so you follow the Pope and I follow a prophet and now who do we follow in the home? Right. Exactly. So there's a variety of issues that this can bring up for couples that can, again, just give more opportunity for conflict and more opportunity for disagreement and some issues. And I guess in the end, um, is this not stuff that they sort out ahead of time? Like, it seems like we knew we were different religions or I guess, too, it could be somebody changed. Yeah, and this this is what gets a lot of people is that when you're dating someone, the differences feel very philosophical. Yeah, it's very not abstract. a big deal. It's it doesn't big matter deal. where we marry. Yeah, and, and especially in our modern day and age where we very much view everyone as we want to be accepting, we love everyone, and yeah. it's okay. So, yeah, you have different religious beliefs than I. That's okay. It's not going to matter. But like I said, because where a lot of these conflicts occur in daily behavior – how we're raising our kids. Well, those aren't issues that come up when we're dating. And so a lot of dating couples might assume, well, this isn't going to be that big of a deal. Mm. And then not it's not until after they're married, after they're establishing their families that they realize, hey, these things that I thought weren't that big of a deal when it was just the two of us around you yeah. know, at the restaurant – now in the home are are more of an issue for me. Interesting. Like Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump's daughter, converted to Judaism and married her husband. Mm-hmm. And I mean that that becomes a shift globally in some families. Like the minute you leave your faith and go to another faith, right. that's a big deal. But um, I also see a lot of people that marry with the same faith and then somebody doesn't believe or doesn't care anymore. Right. And even that kind of interfaith situation – whether it's I just disengage from our faith to nothing or in a non-denominational type of spirituality or actually move to another faith, that can then accompany or be accompanied by this sense of loss of trust mm. and, and you're not the person I thought you were yeah. when you're married. And that, again, raises a whole other set of issues. Oh, interesting. Because, then, yeah, then it's a trust issue. It becomes like, how could you? Mm-hmm. I thought we were doing this together. Right. And, and again, that joint religious faith oftentimes was tied with this vision of us in the future. This is where we're heading. These are tied to our goals and our marriage. And now you've disengaged from this thing that's so important in my life. And so it feels like what what are we moving towards now anymore? Yeah. 
It's like you bait and switched me. Mm-hmm. Shame on you. Um, so what do we do? I mean, if, I guess if you find yourself in an interfaith situation, uh, interfaith marriage, what do you do to, to bridge it? How do, you, how do you make it through it? Yeah, one of the very first steps is to have authentic communication about this issue. So not just the surface level, oh, tell me what your church believes yeah. and what my church believes, but learning about what does that mean for you on a day-to-day basis and also learning, I mean, the reality is, is that very few people are 100% bought into their religious faith. Right. So what are the aspects of your religious faith that really matter to you? What are the ones that you hold tight to that if I disagreed with, and maybe it's a moral behavior, maybe it's a particular doctrinal belief, but but what are the core things for you? That's what I want to learn, and that's what we have to have open and honest communication about yeah. because we have to understand what that person really, really values. Because, yeah, we might summarize it like they're a Mormon – but there's religious – there's parts of the the religious system that they value more. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I always teach with the clients I work with that let's understand the principles right. that, the, the, that the believer really believes in. Once we understand the principle, then you right. can usually agree with the principle. Right. Like I agree that I – with the service. Yeah, exactly. The service is really important. Yeah, and, and that's sometimes all we get to in relationships. Yeah. But – you know, let, let's say that, hey, I, I value the Holy Scriptures. Well, great. Yeah. I, I value the Holy Scriptures too. But for, let's say, one Protestant individual, well, Bible study in the middle of the week is completely important. I'm going to be there every single week. Every Wednesday And my night. kids, yeah. our kids are going to be there every single week too. And you have another person goes to the same Protestant church that says, well, I value the Holy Scriptures, but, you know, I understand we want to do other things on Wednesday. So I'll just kind of do my personal study. Yeah. I need to get to that level. And understand you. that. And level. understand that. Where where is this going to actually affect our daily life and process as a couple? And then that provides the template for where are then the potential conflicts and issues that we need to now talk about. Hmm. Can you actually do that proactively, preventatively enough to anticipate the future? Not necessarily completely, because yeah. some things are just you're Something's not going to think about and things mm-hmm. are going to change. But I think you can do a lot of it, yeah. particularly early on, even before a marriage. Again, and understanding what that person really values and what they want to do. And then like anything in the dating realm is as you're getting those things and realizing, OK, these three things about my my partner's faith are not going to change. They're really important to them. I don't necessarily agree with them. I can see this as a point of conflict. Is that something I am now willing to work with hmm. for the next 50 years of my life? That's it. Is that – and that's a great question. Is this something I'm willing to to work with and deal with and manage the rest of our marriage? Yeah. But then there's the retroactive version where, OK, so now we were in a faith set together and one of us moved away from the religion. Now help me understand your side. What do you why, – why are you moving away? So it's just right. as important for the believer right. to understand the non-believer mm-hmm. as the non-believer to understand the believer. Right. And that's just basic healthy communication. It's, yeah. it's about – it's not about changing someone. It's about understanding someone yeah. and understanding their perspective. And then that can form the basis of how we compromise. And that can be really hard in situations like you said where someone leaves a faith. Because it feels like now any compromise I'm going to give is me moving away. That's right. It's, it's always me losing more and more of my faith right. to support you to move away from mm-hmm. your faith. Um, so once we're communicating, another point I know you bring up is that we need to respect. Right. And that's that's hard because some people move away from faith because they felt like the faith was disrespectful Good. or the faith made yeah. some move. Yeah, and, and there's an absolute truth quality to religious faith that's hard to overcome here, that in almost any religious faith, 
I believe that this is absolute truth. I believe that my view is right and your yeah. view is wrong. And so respecting someone's belief doesn't mean that you devalue your own. And that, that's a common misconception right. people have is I feel like if I respect you and acknowledge that that for you, your belief system matters, that that somehow diminishes my faith because I have to be right and you have to be wrong. And that's, that's not true. I can respect your thinking process, understand that you have your own choice and agency in the matter, um, and understand that you can still be a, a great, mature, wonderful person even if we don't agree yeah. on this. And it doesn't diminish my value set. It doesn't diminish the fact that I have faith that whatever I believe is true. It just simply means that I understand that people – are going to have differing views than I do. But I guess the key is you can't you, – you also can't fight or demean their view. You can't right. fight against their view like, right. that's stupid. I left the church for this reason. Yeah. You sh- I can't believe you stay in the church. Yeah. One of the most common ways this devolves into some negative process for couples is it becomes this convincing debate. Yeah. Okay, you want to leave this church here. Let's, let's sit down and I'm going to argue against every point of view that you have. And or we're two different faiths, and now our entire marriage consists of us trying to convert each other yeah. to the other faith. And, and again, anytime you're trying to win an argument, you've stopped communicating. Yeah, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Today, we're talking about having faith in your interfaith marriage. So far, we've talked about the importance of communication and respect. When we come back, we'll continue uh, the discussion learning how to learn about their faith and uh, creating some compromise as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're here to help you be the good in the world. We'll be back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. According to some recent research, I guess, uh, currently around 39% of marriages are interfaith marriages. And uh, I guess what that means then, as we're joined by Dr. Brian Willoughby, uh, who's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University and the new co-author of the book, The Marriage Paradox, is we've got to learn, if we're going to have these differences of faith, uh, it doesn't mean it has to ruin your marriage. That's right. It just means... You got to get really good. So far, we've talked about it: communication and respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does. It does certainly make things harder, and that's important to keep. In it mind. brings up issues, doesn't yeah. it? And forever, mm-hmm. like even how. I mean, it's not just how you marry and where you marry, but right. where your kids go to church, and then how you want to be buried. Right. Exactly. Right? I mean, and I know people that don't want to be. Um, they don't want to be cremated because mm-hmm. their faith doesn't believe in that. Mm-hmm. So. And there's even a deeper, more abstract piece, and this, this manifests in just general anxiety in these interfaith marriages, is the whole purpose from a sociological perspective of religion is to answer the question, what happens to us when Huge. we die? Mm-hmm. And so if we have an interfaith marriage, it's likely that we have slightly different beliefs about what's going to happen. And, and that can cause some anxiety. Oh, yeah. of, well, you think this is going to happen to us, and I think this is going to happen. And a lot of uh, particularly Christian and other faiths don't believe in the concept of an eternal marriage. And so if one spouse, think, spouse thinks this is an eternal relationship and the other one thinks, well, this is just while we're here on just earth. Here. And then, I mean, that that can cause some stress That's, too. And I guess too how how God intervenes all through life. Right. Mm-hmm. Like how much is our job to do? How much is God's intervention to do? Right. 
Yeah. You mentioned uh, priesthood authority mm-hmm. earlier. It was, would be one thing too. That would be amazing. So I guess part of it is we got to – you said have an open, clear, real conversation with somebody. Then learn to also respect their, their views where – that's not tolerate them. Like don't put up with their stupidity. Right. This is truly see with reverence. Right. See, see that there is value in to what, what they, they believe and yeah. what they do for them. Again, it doesn't mean that I have to agree or convert myself, but I can see and, – and this is an important thing about really any religious faith is that you can find in almost any religion a lot of good. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to point at a religion and say that, that religion is so bad. bad things. Right. There's a couple out there, yeah. but not most of them. Um, and so I have to I have to see that that this this is a good thing. It's helping my spouse be a good person. It's going to help our family be better if I allow it to do that. And and this is your spouse, right? right? So the last thing you should be looking for is ways to demean them, right? And pull them down. Mm-hmm. Another point you bring up is we need to learn, and is right. that I guess learn more about what's going on with them. Yeah, and it goes back to the behavior again. We we a lot of this conflict is what you do and your behavior. I have to learn the motivation why. Because I might not understand it. I don't. I don't understand. You know, if if I'm of a Protestant faith or LDS faith, and I and I marry a Catholic, why are you kneeling and why are you crossing yourself and and why do you do this in your church mm-hmm. services? If I can learn the why behind the actual beliefs behind those things, again, not because I necessarily need to convert to that, because I want to understand how you're thinking. I want to understand your motivation. I want to understand you more. When this thing that you're doing every week or every day is is so important. If I can understand and learn why you're doing it, I'm going to understand the motivation better. Well, and imagine that you could you, – let's say your your spouse is a Catholic and you see she uses the rosary. You understand why she uses the rosary. You respect why she uses the rosary mm-hmm. and you're from another faith and you go buy her a rosary. Mm-hmm. Like how amazing is that? Right. Yeah, and it gives you those opportunities that if I've learned and understand – you, then there are those opportunities to say things, do things in the relationship, give gifts, like you said, that are deeper and meaningful, that Mm. that are going to actually bring us together and connect us more because I'm going to feel so much more validated by you, um, even though we might have those differing beliefs. And I guess this this process of communicating, respecting, and learning, and then communicating, respecting, and learning, doing that over and over, we'll actually have a similar vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll be on the same terms. Yeah. And one of the, the cool things, I like to look at this as a pod. Like I said, this, this is a risk factor for divorce. But if couples do it the right way, they can actually have stronger marriages than just about anyone else can because it was harder. Yeah, they went through the hard thing. They process. went through the hard thing. If, if we have the same religious faith, sometimes it's, we can coast a little bit. Mm-hmm. We, we already are on the same page. Yeah. We understand We know we're going to church Sunday. Yeah. Right. Um, but interfaith couples have had to work through these things to be successful. That's true. And, and that, can, that can really strengthen the relationship. Talk about compromise because at some point you're going to have to compromise. Maybe right. we don't go to church every Wednesday night for Bible study. Right. And so how do we know how to compromise without thinking we're compromising on like our life after this world? Right. And, and part of that is the first step is good self-introspection. Mm. I have to think for myself, what are the aspects of my religious practice that are really core and matter? You know, is, is it Bible study? Is it Sunday church service? Is it, you know, paying a donation or a tithing? What are those things that I don't or I'm not willing to compromise yeah. on, or not willing to change in myself. And which things, if I sit back and really think about it, am I willing to be a little bit more flexible on? I have to do that first 
individually, and we both have to do it first individually. And then that can set the the basis of the conversation. We can come to the table and both kind of say, here are the things that we both feel like we can't change much or give up. Okay, can we coordinate those first, right? So again, if we both feel like Sunday church service is absolutely vital, let's start there. Does that mean we both go different places? That, does that mean we're going to ch- two church services on Sunday? Is that feasible? So start with the things that there's less flexibility on and then move to the things where there is more flexibility on. That's great. And talk through those things next. And, and those things will be easier once you've gotten the harder things. Out. And I, especially once you understand each other and you respect each other, you, there should be certain things you'd never ask them to compromise. Right. Because you see it brings them joy. Right. Yeah. And you understand that part. Yeah. That's powerful. And I guess in the end, don't be discouraged. You can have faith that in, if you're in an interfaith marriage, it can work. Right, right. And then I guess is it, uh, is it something we'd want to push for our children that they find people from their faith? How do we, how do we uh, if it is healthier or a little easier marriage, if, if it's the same faith, is that what we want to push? I think it depends on you. I mean, I I think it's going to be hard for a lot of parents to not want to push that because they can see that, one, it's easier. Two, it fits their value system. And so there's there's that piece. And there are several religious faiths where where marrying within the faith is a really important kind of almost doctrine practice in a lot of ways. Um, So I think you can do that. But also realize that there's a lot of other things that go into a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship. And and as a parent, I want to make sure that if I have a child that's in a relationship and thinking about moving towards marriage and everything about that man or woman is great except this one thing, you know, do I really want to attack that relationship, have them end it, and now move to this person that's of my faith right. but has 20 other things and that are going to cause a problem? They've got other issues. Yeah. I and mean, that's the thing. Once you're in a, a religious or a religion, you do realize everyone's just human. Right. Yeah. So, I, so as a parent, I need to look collectively at my children's relationships and, and also realize that by the time they're making these decisions, my role is not as dictator. It's as advisor. Advisor. And do what you can to minimize future issues. But, and really, I guess one way to do that is by giving them more and more tools right. to handle it. Dr. Brian Willoughby is his name. Go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com, uh, where you can get his book, The Marriage Paradox. You can also uh, listen to him here every two weeks. We have Brian on to pick his brain about all things relational. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, BYU Sports Nation will be joining us. Stick with us right here on BYU Radio. We will now ride the roller coaster downstairs to our television studios where BYU Sports Nation is preparing to launch in just 10 minutes. Spencer and Jer- – no, 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 no. Spencer's gone. Spencer's in having fun. Uh, Jerem and Jason are down there having to carry the load and the work. Hello, gentlemen. We need to go, no, go for lunch. Systems check. Systems check. Roger that. Go, no, go. Go or no, go. You are, you are oh, it's a- always a go. Oh, it's a go. It's yeah. a go. In 10 minutes, you guys are a gone. You are well, gone. Well, hopefully not. Well, hopefully we'll be here, right? But at 11 o'clock, we have a big company meeting. We'll find out if you're a goner. <laughs> uh, I digress. Hey, um, here's Well, a... football season has to happen first, and then we'll see. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you guys got to get through football This would be season. bad timing. It would be horrible timing. <laughs> hey, um, I, was, uh, I was thinking of you guys. 
Um, did you hear Le- LeBron went to a pickup game in New yeah. York with mm-hmm. Carmelo and Kevin Durant? Yes. What, what if you just showed up and some guy says, hey, do you want to come to this pickup game? It's just a little pickup game. And you, went, you showed up to the pickup game, and in the game, LeBron shows up and Carmelo, and you have to guard these guys. What do you think? What I would happen? I would just hope nobody was recording it. <laughs> they because were. That would not. that would not end well for me. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if they're just shooting all over you? Darren Ravel, who is an ESPN sports business analyst, he one time played, and he's crazy unathletic, but he played again, like one on one against <laughs> a Knicks player. Yeah. What's their 7 3? Christops? Christops Porzingis. Porzingis. He played against him, and it, I thought it was like a little kid. Against, Did it just like, look oh hilarious? My goodness, that's, See, that's not. Darren Rebell. That's just making fun of the but little But I wouldn't guy. call him an athlete based on that performance. Yeah. Well, but see, that's the difference. I would call you two athletes. Athletes. Don't ask uh, Lauren Frankham McLean about if we're BYU athletes or not. We had a, li- we had a little uh, verbal skirmish. Oh, ooh, did you? Ago. Did she win? Who won? Well, she didn't. She said, well, you guys aren't athletes. And I was like, what? excuse me? We aren't, BYU, we aren't athletes at BYU. We're generally athletic. Yeah, this guy over here. I mean, like 55th in the state. 55th. With no in, practice in five A in a sport. No, but you, but that which Let's was not amazing. Worry about what sport? Because yeah, that was great. <laughs> because there were actually only fifty seven. people. Imagine if he had applied himself where he could have where he could have gone with. This. Absolutely no, it, no. But to someone, some, to someone who like tr- you know considers themselves an athlete to say they're not an athlete. Oh, that's like, that, oh, that, them, hits, them is fighting words. That, man. that hits right. you know it hits. I know right to a nerve. I know. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, yeah. Jeff tells me every day I'm not a talk show host. <laughs> And you're like, I'll show you for the next three hours. I'll show you. Welcome Friday. to the Matt Towson Show. What's the name of the show, Jeff? Hibbity hop. What's the name of the show? <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> that was my argument. Like, what's the name of the show that you work on, Jeff? What's the name? When I'm not here and you're doing my show, what's the name of that show? Yeah. Yeah, that didn't go very well. All of a sudden, you're gone for one day, and it's the Jeff Simpson it's, it Show. It is the Jeff, Jeff, Whoa, Lee, the Jeff Liam Simpson Show. Hey, guys, what's on your <laughs> show today? You're still doing your show, right? Today's BYU compelling and rich. Okay, we're we're ten days out from BYU versus Portland State. Mm. We're going to talk about. We've talked a lot about the what we call the Furious Five, the five toughest games on BYU schedule. Yes, maybe we've missed the mark here. The first five games chronologically for BYU may dictate how the season goes, and there is a game in there that is the swing game of swing games that could put BYU at three and two or two and three Ooh. kind of expectations. We'll break that down coming up. We'll also have a two-on-one. Uh, Jeremy and I talked with a cornerback's coach, Gennaro Guilford. You will hear that. And Greg Rubel will join us in studio. We will – It's it, honestly, we talk about uh, things that people look forward to. A cool thing about Canada, mm-hmm. everybody looks forward to that part of the interview with Greg Rubel every week. We will find out a cool thing about Canada. Plus, what did Aaron <laughs> Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers say about Jamal Williams yesterday that got our attention? Really? Was it That's positive? All coming up. Was it just, can you just tell me if it's positive or negative? Uh, it's positive. Yes. <gasps> Very Jamal, positive. Jamal Williams has done nothing negative in Packers. Ooh, he's, he's going to be living it. It's in. all good in the hood, man. All good in the hood. So the first five games are Portland, LSU, Utah, Wisconsin, Utah, Utah State. State. Yes. Yep. See, three of the Furious Five are in the first five. Yes. Yes. But it, but it really does boil down, or quite possibly could boil down to those first five games setting up the season. Oh, brother. I was, that's a tough schedule. It is tough. Yeah. 
Two top 15 teams in there in three weeks. Oh, boy. With your rival sandwiched in the middle of that. By the way, did you see the billboard? That's, saw billboard I did right? not see it. Terry but North I have was heard actually it. telling me about this. Yeah. Terry North, South and West was. And um, he. <laughs> Terry Northbound. But it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a billboard right in the heart of Cougar Country. Uh, it's a Utah billboard. And so I, I was trying to figure out why they would do that other than taunting. So maybe yeah. bring that up tomorrow on your show. Yeah, taunting. That's a 15 yard penalty. Totally. 15 yard penalty. All right, gents, knock them dead. I know it's going to be a great show. It always is when uh, Jeremy and Jason are in charge and Spencer's away. You know, when the cat is away, folks, the mice, they play. It is roller coaster day, so make sure uh, somebody needs to call Spencer to make sure he is getting a good shot on a roller coaster because heaven knows there won't be any roller coaster riding for the rest of us today. That's right, because he's at Disneyland. He is. He's loving it, having a good time as always. Hey, as you know, we always like to end the show with a hero story. And what a cool story this was. This is from Alaska Airlines. Nearly five months after a kidney transplant, both the donor and the recipient, an Alaska Airlines pilot and flight attendant, are back at work at 30,000 feet up and flying on cloud nine. In March, Captain Jody Harskamp underwent surgery to transplant one of her healthy kidneys to flight attendant Jenny Stansel. I never wavered in my decision to donate, Harskamp told Alaska Airlines. There's nothing more fulfilling as a human being than to help another human being live. Stansel, who had to been battling chronic kidney disease for 15 years, was out on, a di- on dialysis, uh, a grueling treatment for end-stage kidney failure, and a near collapse during a flight last year. That's when Harskamp flew in to help her. Speaking with ABC News just before her transplant, the two said they met after Harskamp's house burned down. Stansel was the first on the scene with homemade lasagna. Jenny was one of the first people to show up. She made lasagna from scratch, and she said, You don't know me, but here's some love. For years after the fire, Stancil needed a new kidney. Oh, no, four years after the fire, she needed a new kidney. And bada-boom, bada-bing, guess what happened? You just, somebody happened to be the perfect match, and it just happened to be her friend, uh, Jenny. So congratulations, really, to both of them, who were there for each other um, and uh, and were able to actually take care of, uh, of a need. And think about it. In this country and time when everybody seems to be so tense and afraid and worried about uh, loving and taking care of one another, what better story could there be than the hero story of coworkers helping coworkers, neighbors helping neighbors? Powerful stuff. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back again tomorrow. We're here to help you uh, do everything you can to elevate your life and to be the good in the world. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. Let's look after each other. BYU Sports Nation is up next.